When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and can I just thank you for letting me join you for Scripture Study each week. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for the technology that allows us to come together and study Scripture. I'm grateful there's no bell at the end of class uh, that's forcing me to go faster than, than the Scriptures would, would want us to. Uh, just yesterday, I was teaching a class in, at BYU on Alma 32, and we had an amazing experience, but it's only 50 minutes long, and I think I got through about half of what I'd hoped. Uh, and so I am grateful for the luxury of time. Uh, I, I know that we take quite a bit of it. Uh, from here on out, perhaps we'll take a little less. Uh, I can't make any promises or it's fal false advertising. Many of you called me out for that at the beginning of our Old Testament year last, <laughs> last year. But we, won't, we, don't, we no longer have long historical introductions to introduce us to the, the writings and the background and, and audience and, and approach and aim of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've already introduced you to each of them, and I hope that enough of that will stay in your mind that you'll be able to recognize their fingerprints all over the page. Uh, as we started doing uh, last week with the baptism, weaving together these disparate threads from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, bringing in a little John, since he mentions it in John 1 as well. We'll be doing more of that, and it does get tricky because the chronologies don't, don't exactly uh, match. Yeah, I was really wrestling with some of the passages in today's material about the temptations of Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about that. But then moving forward, the chronologies start to go in different directions, and the order of events is really hard to nail down. Uh, so we're, we're going to have to excuse ourselves from some of the, the strict historical consciousness uh, to be able to say, well, I don't know if this happened first or that happened first, but they both happened according to these gospel writers, and so let's discuss them uh, in what or, whatever order sounds best to us. Now, speaking of what we did last week, studying the baptism of Christ, one of you reached out and asked an excellent question about John the Baptist's authority. Uh, for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, authority is hugely important. Uh, I could say the same for Catholicism. Uh, Protestantism doesn't care so much. They believe their authority comes from the Bible itself, and as long as we have the Bible, then to borrow from Martin Luther, it's a priesthood of all believers. As I've said before, if the restored gospel is a proving of contraries between Catholicism and Protestantism, we do have as wide as widespread an authority as, as Martin Luther could have hoped for, truly a priesthood of all believers. That's our Protestant side, but from our Catholic side, it does have to be passed down in an unbroken chain. It does have to be authority from authorized servants, okay? And so that was an excellent question. If John the Baptist is baptizing in the, in the River Jordan, are people wondering, where'd you get your authority? Well, the irony is they didn't seem to be wondering and they didn't seem to be wondering about this newfangled approach to religion known as baptism. No, they seemed to come flocking and were more amazed by his, his doctrine. We'll see some of that in, in what Jesus teaches today. But more amazed that he would have the courage to call people out. Uh, this generation of vipers that, we, that, that slithered among us last week. Uh, but the idea of immersing people in water didn't seem to strike anyone as odd. 
And one of the reasons for that is in, even in Judaism today, there is something called a mikvah. And a mikvah is, we would consider it a baptismal font. The literal word, in, or the Hebrew of the word, literally means a gathering, which I think is interesting as we ponder gatherings of Israel and so on. But a gathering of water into some kind of body of it. It can be something small, a pot, uh, a, a font, a pool, a cistern. It can be something large. The word is used in Genesis when it talks about, let's gather the waters together and we'll call it sea and everything left is the land. And so I think it's interesting that there, even in the idea of a mikvah, you get this, this, this picture of a new creation, a new beginning of it all. And so I think that's fascinating to think about baptism as a new creation, a rebirth as well. Uh, and so in, in the Old Testament, there's much talk of ritual purity, of needing to be cleansed. And many times it's being washed in order to be cleansed. The Old Testament doesn't make it clear exactly how that washing is to occur. But by the time you get into this intertestamental period, uh, the second temple period, and the time leading up to the New Testament, the uh, Jews are carving out of the rock, uh, digging holes, uh, going to the Jordan. They're finding gatherings of water to use for ritual immersion and ritual purification. And so by the time John is doing that, uh, the Jews would go, oh, okay, he's, he's trying to help us become ritually pure, just like, just like others might. Uh, in some ways, if you think about the Last Supper and the transition from Passover to sacrament, the, Jesus wasn't creating something out of thin air. He was taking an existing practice, the Passover meal, and giving it, infusing it with new meaning and new life and turning it into the sacrament. Yeah, in a similar way, you can see that with John the Baptist going from mikvah uh, and ritual purification to baptism. And it's not baptism into a church. The church isn't there yet. Uh, you could say baptism into the kingdom of God, which is a bigger organization. I don't even know if organization is the right, is the right term, but a bigger kingdom because the king is at hand. And as we saw last week, repent ye for the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm baptizing you into the kingdom, but not into a church. The way it was always described then is, and we talk about it in the, in the fourth article of faith, it's baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. But again, about his authority, where's that coming from? Remember who his parents were. And if Zacharias is, is serving in the temple, hmm, he's a priest. And if, remember his mother, uh, Elizabeth, was of the daughters of Aaron. So you don't get higher authority as far as uh, lineage and inheritance is concerned than from Zacharias and Elizabeth. As we saw the, the genealogy of Jesus, that if, if Rome hadn't stepped in, then Joseph of Nazareth could have been Joseph, king of Judah. And in a similar way, John the Baptist could have been high priest if it weren't for the apostate priesthood that was running the show in Jerusalem at the time, the likes of Annas and Caiaphas, it would have been John instead. So no worries about authority. In fact, it's interesting that later in the New Testament, we'll see this later in the Gospels, the people are wondering, scribes and Pharisees particularly, uh, about Jesus, where'd you get your authority? So authority was an issue, it was a question. Where did you get yours? And Jesus' response is classic. We'll get into it more in depth when we get there, but preview of coming attractions. He takes their question about authority and turns it back on them, asking them to answer your own question. But let me uh, replace myself with 
John. Where'd he, he didn't say where'd he get his authority, but in, in terms of a question of authority, I think it's, it's implied in the question that Jesus gives in, in response, which was, tell me about John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it of man? You get a hint of authority there? Did God allow this or is this just some kind of man-made thing that he was doing? And I think in a way, what he's, in fact, the way Jesus says it, let me ask you a question. And if you can answer it, then I'll answer your question about my authority. I think in reality, Jesus is saying, if you can answer that question, then I won't need to answer your question because you will have already answered it for yourselves. So again, the question, you're asking about my authority. I'm asking about John's baptism. Was that from above or from uh, outside? Uh, was he looking vertically to God or horizontally to man? And what kind of authority, what kind of, what source of that power would you, would you name? And what's interesting is the, the Pharisees there, the Jewish leaders, they realize we can't answer that. At least we won't answer that. Because if we say it's merely of men, the people will rise up against us because John is just that popular. You could say similar things of Jesus. Then again, if we say that it comes from God, then Jesus is going to call us out and say, if it comes from God, then why don't you accept it? And in a similar vein, he's talking about himself. I'm not just popular among the populace. This is not simply some kind of mortal people coming, and I'm the latest craze in the day. No, my authority comes from God, just like John's did. And that seems to be what what Jesus is hinting at. The, the, the Jewish leaders walk away with tail between their legs going, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Okay, fine. Uh, but we can. And if Jesus is using John for his own backup in some ways, we know Christ has authority. We know that John does too. If you want a clearer answer for this, by the way, you can go to section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. We talked about that at length a couple of years ago. But in section 84, verse 26 through 28 is describing the Aaronic priesthood, sharing, uh, administering the, the ministering of angels, the preparatory gospel, and then says in 27 and 28, which gospel is the gospel of repentance and of baptism and the remission of sins and the law of carnal commandments, which the Lord in his wrath caused to continue with the house of Aaron among the children of Israel until John. So this is authority notice, that has been passed down, continues with the house of Aaron until John. Now, was it in a state of apostasy by the time John comes onto the scene? Yes, although ordinances, we could say, are still being performed. Temple rituals are being performed in Jerusalem. Zacharias himself was participating in that. But notice how the verse goes on. So it's continued with the house of Israel among the children of Israel until John, whom God raised up. Think about what Jesus is saying about John's baptism. Does it come from God or does it come from man? Well, section 84 makes that abundantly clear. God raised him up for this, this calling, this mission, this authority. Being filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Now, that's not confirmation, laying out of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, but to be filled with the Spirit. Even in utero, you remember when Mary first comes to see the, the pregnant Elizabeth and she feels the baby leap within her womb? Oh yes, feel, filled with the Spirit and being prompted to respond in a spiritual way to the coming of, of Christ, even within Mary's womb. Then, verse 28 of section 84, For he was baptized while he was yet in his childhood. 
And would that have been some kind of ritual immersion? Would that have been uh, it going to a mikvah? Would that have been performed by his father? We don't know all the details, but here we have it. He was baptized in his childhood. And then even more importantly, as far as authority is concerned, and was ordained by the angel of God at the time he was eight days old unto this power. And what power was it? To overthrow the kingdom of the Jews because a greater kingdom was at hand to make straight the way of the Lord before the face of his people. In other words, to straighten out all the crooked ways that apostate, apostate priesthood was preaching. To make straight the way of the Lord and to prepare them for the coming of the Lord in whose hand is given all power. So John's was a preliminary power, a, a lesser priesthood, an Aaronic level in preparation for the Melchizedek level that was coming right behind him. Now, again, we don't have the details on this. I wish we did. But to think of John at eight days old, and eight is the number for new beginnings since a week has passed, and day eight is a new day one, new creation. Let's gather the waters, shall we? If you think about eight and a new beginning with circumcision, which is what takes place on the eighth day for a Jewish boy, to take upon him the covenant and the token of the covenant, a new covenant beginning for him on the eighth day, day. You see symbolism in the eighth year, reaching the age of accountability to be baptized. And so this new beginning, and, and at some point that day, that eighth day, he is taking upon himself the covenant with mom and dad's help. He's being circumcised. And at some point then an angel comes to ordain him unto this power. There's authority for you. And it's a power to overthrow one kingdom to make way for another clear out the generation of vipers from the Garden of Eden, because the keeper of the garden is coming, and he's got trees of life to plant. Two statements from Joseph Smith can also help clarify this, if you're still interested. He said this, as touching the gospel and baptism that John preached, I would say that John came preaching the gospel for the remission of sins. He had his authority from God. Again, we learned that from section 84. And the oracles of God were with him. And the kingdom of God, for a season, seemed to rest with John alone. This voice in the wilderness. Who else is, is speaking up? No one, it seems. The Lord promised Zacharias that he should have a son who was a descendant of Aaron, on both sides of the family tree. And the Lord, having promised that the priesthood should continue with Aaron and his seed throughout their generations, let no man take this honor unto himself, except he be called of God, as was Aaron, there, Joseph Smith is quoting Hebrews 5.4. It's part of our fifth article of faith, right? And Aaron received his call by revelation. So if that was the case in Aaron's day, it's the case in John's day. This is a, a power from above, not, not a power from man. And then later, another statement from Joseph Smith about this. John, at that time, was the only legal administrator in the affairs of the kingdom there was then on the earth, and holding the keys of power. The Jews had to obey his instructions or be damned by their own law. How's that for irony? And Christ himself fulfilled all righteousness in becoming obedient to the law which he had given to Moses on the mount, and thereby magnified it and made it honorable instead of destroying it. So even in ritual immersion, to fulfill all righteousness, this was a chance for him not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And then I love what the prophet says to conclude this quote. The son of Zacharias wrested the keys 
He wrestled them away from apostate priesthood. He wrested the keys, the kingdom, the power, the glory from the Jews by the holy anointing and decree of heaven. The holy anointing, there's the angel coming when John was eight days old to ordain him to this power. And this decree of heaven, well, think of the angel appearing to Zacharias and letting him know that this little boy uh, was meant to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We saw all of that take place last week as Jesus then came to fulfill all righteousness and be baptized of him. In other words, John performed his mission and was authorized to do so. Just like Jesus, a lamb without blemish prepared from before the foundation of the world, was prepared and authorized to perform his mission as well. In fact, it's with that I'd like to give you one last piece of background before we dive into the the new material we have for this week. And this is one, shame on me, I should have taught you last week because it's straight out of Luke chapter 3, but it's in the Joseph Smith translation of it. And it serves me right for trying to to lesson prep in airports and during red-eye flights when everyone around me is sleeping. And I was probably half asleep myself. I totally spaced this this Joseph Smith translation uh, excerpt or edition, and it's one of my favorites of all time. So shame on me. Uh, if we can bring it in to begin today's lesson, or at least to con- conclude a week later, last week's lesson, this Joseph Smith translation is worth its. It's worth the whole project in some ways. There are uh, many uh, a, a, cha- a change in the JST that clarify, but occasionally there are tapestries woven out of whole cloth, inserted into the text that adds such vivid color to what we're seeing. Remember, Moses 1 was an example of that. It's nowhere in the Old Testament, and yet it's the JST of where the Old Testament comes from and where it all begins. Uh, Moses 6 and 7, this incredible masterpiece about the visions of Enoch bringing his city up to heaven. Nowhere present in the Old Testament, and there we have page after page of it. Uh, in the JST. Uh, How little we know about Melchizedek from the Old Testament and how much we know about him from the JST. So again, there are these places where it's not just a correction, but a a massive insertion and addition, all by revelation. Uh, Nothing on an ancient manuscript that we have to look at, but by revelation, God gives this to the prophet who then gives it to us. And that's what we see in the JST of Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. It's too long to fit in the footnotes. Maybe that's why I missed it. But it's in the appendix that you'll see uh, these longer excerpts from the JST. And this one is magnificent because it gives us, in the mouth of John the Baptist, that's why I should have brought it up last week, part of his mission was to bear witness of the Messiah and the mission of the Messiah that Jesus would fulfill. I don't know of a single passage in Scripture that does a better job of laying out what being the Messiah would entail for Jesus. In fact, if you count them, and we'll count them together in a moment, there are 10 things that John lists. I call these the 10 commandments of Christ. And compared to his, ours are a cakewalk. Ours, yeah, just don't kill anybody, would you? Can you, can you keep that under control? Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, honor the Sabbath, honor your parents. Our 10 are pretty simple and straightforward. Compare that to the 10 things that Jesus would have to be able to do. And it's incredible. In some ways, this is the lengthened version 
of the father's question and premortality, whom shall I send? Because what he's really asking is, who can do all 10 of these things? And if you study Revelation chapter 5, silence reigned in heaven. As we looked around nervously, desperately, wondering who could possibly do all that. And no one was able, the strong angel says. We'll see, we'll flash back to this when we get to Revelation 5, because that's the fullest version of the war in heaven we have in Scripture. Uh, But to tie Revelation 5 in with Abraham 3, whom shall I send, and now JST of Luke chapter 3, what was the Lord, what was the Father asking for? Well, notice this. JST, Luke chapter 3, 4 through 10. He's in the middle of describing John the Baptist's arrival, his mission call, as it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And these are the words, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. Now that we're totally familiar with. We saw it in so many of the gospel accounts we studied last week. That's straight out of Isaiah chapter 40. This is the, the, the freeway, the, the highway construction that we've talked about so, so often. But then notice, all that's coming is straight out of Revelation to the prophet Joseph. For behold, and lo, he shall come as it is written in the book of the prophets. Now, is this something that Isaiah is continuing to say and John is simply quoting a a portion of Isaiah we don't have? I don't know. On the other hand, perhaps more likely, are there other records that John the Baptist has, has knowledge of or access to? And so here it is written in the book of the prophets, plural. Is he bringing all these things together. We don't know. Is this a text, a literal text that John the Baptist has access to? Or is he creating a text as he weaves together disparate strands of thread from throughout the writings of the prophets? We don't know. But what we have in our final version here are are the Ten Commandments of Christ. And here they are. So as it is written in the book of the prophets, this is what he will come to do. Number one, to take away the sins of the world. He is coming as a savior, after all. And his chief mission, since our chief stumbling block is our own sinfulness, who can go down? Down, literally, condescend to the level of sinners and take those sins away from them. Both the sins and the stains of those sins as Elder Christofferson has said, both the taint and the tyranny of sin, as Elder Bednar has taught. Who can do that? Any takers yet? Number two, to bring salvation unto the heathen nations. Luke would love that. No wonder it's included in his gospel. Uh, The heathen nations, the outsiders, who can bring them in and bring salvation to those further away from from the original goal? Number three, to gather together those who are lost, who are of the sheepfold of Israel, yea, even the dispersed and afflicted. Who is the best shepherd to go out and find every lost lamb? Number four, to prepare the way and make possible the preaching of the gospel unto the Gentiles. Again, Luke would perk up about that. The heathen nations, bring them salvation. The the Gentiles, shine the light of the gospel even unto them. In fact, building upon that, his fifth commandment, and to be a light unto all who sit in darkness, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. 
Who shines brightly enough to be the light of the world? Who can rise in the east and shine even unto the west and cast out every shadow along the way? Number six, to bring to pass the resurrection from the dead. Who will be able to stare down death itself and back it into a corner? Who will be able to surrender to death and then overcome it from within? Who has power to die, lay down his life, but also power to live, take it up again? Who can do that? Number seven, to ascend up on high, to dwell on the right hand of the Father until the fullness of time and the law and the testimony shall be sealed and the keys of the kingdom shall be delivered up again unto the Father. How's that for a seventh commandment? Who first can descend below all things, but then ascend up on high and bring everyone else with him? Who can deliver those keys of the kingdom back to the Father saying, the work is done and everyone is coming home? That work is still not finished, but the Lord is still accomplishing it. Number eight, to administer justice unto all. Can you imagine being able to do that? So that when all is said and done, everyone feels they've been treated fairly. I can't even do that with my own children. I only have five of them. Imagine the Lord somehow being able to untangle every, every knotted cord without just untangling this part and shoving the tangle further off somewhere else on the cord. That happens every time I try to untangle my Christmas lights. Uh, I'm just moving the mess elsewhere. And yeah, I, I, I solved it for you, but it ended up making things worse for someone else. No, only Jesus could come and assume within himself, take upon himself the mess of all mortality and be able to untangle everyone's string to perfection. Administer justice unto all. Yeah, that's a tall order. Or number nine, to come down in judgment upon all. Equally difficult here. And in that judgment, somehow be able to balance justice and mercy perfectly for all. Someone that no one will have any complaints about the way they were treated once all is said and done and they see things from the divine perspective. And then tenth, finally, the tenth commandment for Christ to convince all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have committed. And all this in the day that he shall come, for it is a day of power. Yea, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth. Now we're back to Handel's Messiah. Now we're back to Isaiah 40. Was John inserting that right there in the middle of Isaiah 40? Was... It's such a magnificent passage. That last one, just to say briefly about it, to convince the ungodly of their ungodly deeds. If it's one thing we tend to hold on to, it's, it's our own transgressions. And we don't call them transgressive. We justify, we rationalize, we, we avoid condemnation at all costs. But for Christ somehow to be able to convince us that he was right, and that we were wrong. For us to finally submit and surrender, wave the white flag, in Christ's case, probably the red one, 
the crimson one, admitting that he was right and we should have followed and that he's given us every opportunity. Now again, if you put this JST insertion in the middle of the drama of Revelation chapter 5, as this strong angel takes the book with the seven seals from the hand of the Father and says, who is worthy to open this book? And the book represents the mission call of the Messiah. Who is worthy? Notice the angel is strong, but not strong enough to open the book, not strong enough to unseal the seals. We're not looking for strength. We're looking for worthiness. And who's worthy to do all that? Who's worthy, willing, able to perform this saving work? And in Revelation 5's account, no one was. Do, you, do we understand? Our turn on earth would mean nothing if Christ hadn't taken a turn to come as well. Ours would have been a descension with no ascension if it weren't for his condescension. And so, as the heavens wept, according to Revelation 5, and wondered, there's no coming home if we leave. No wonder people started gravitating towards Satan's plan. If no one can pull this off, then this is a one-way trip. It's not round trip. We'll never come back to be with God, let alone like him. Lucifer's option now is starting to sound pretty appealing. But then in the midst of it, silence only broken with sobbing and tears. The angel, the strong angel, finally says to reassure us, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the book with the seven seals, or to borrow the language of JST Luke 3. The Lamb of God has come. That's John's language. To lay down his life and to do everything God is expecting of him. Christ will keep all ten commandments to make up for every commandment we don't keep. I testify of that. Can you see why I love this JST edition so much? I am grateful for so much of the truth and powerful testimony that we've received through the work of the prophet Joseph Smith. This, to me, is an absolute gem amidst an incredible treasure trove. And with that, we're ready to move forward. This week, we study the temptation of Christ, the calling of the initial apostles. We saw some of that hinted at in John chapter 1, not hinted, described in John chapter 1. But we'll see Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version of that today. The first half of what we'll study will be the temptations. The second half, we'll see this. We'll see Christ at his own home synagogue in Nazareth. The scene there, talk about drama. It's amazing. Hold on for that. And then the calling of fishers of men. And the beginning of the Savior's mortal ministry all unfolds in the material we'll study this week. It's Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and 5, although we'll bring in a little bit of Mark 1 to round it all out. Uh, and if you remember from the end of last week, we concluded with the baptism of Christ. And immediately after that commitment, here comes the contention uh, from the adversary. As soon as the Lord has, has planted his banner in the soil and said, here I, here I stand and I will not be moved. Well, here comes the tempter in an attempt to move him. 
You see that clearly in Mark's beginning of all of this. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. This is right after the phrase, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father speaking of the Son, or to the Son at the baptism. But then Mark's account says, And immediately, remember that's the word Mark loves to use because this is a fast-paced gospel, Immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. The JST of that actually clarifies Satan seeking to tempt him. Ah, you, you thought you were tempting me. Ah, you're trying to anyway, but I'm not interested. I'm not tempted by your temptations at all. Keep going in Mark. And, was, and Jesus was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him. And I do love the timing we see here, the immediacy of it all, that you're going to get whiplash turning so quickly from baptism to temptation which sadly is so true to form. Elder Holland gave a magnificent talk years ago. He's given a lot of them, right? But one of his masterpieces was called, it's a a mouthful, Cast Not Away Therefore Thy Confidence. It had to be that long because it's a phrase from Paul and Elder Holland wanted to quote the whole thing. But this thought of not casting away your confidence, the way Elder Holland described it is right on the heels of powerful experiences and deep commitments Satan comes rushing in, in hopes of nipping that in the bud. The last, Satan hates good direction, but even good direction can be stopped if it's not followed with good momentum. You understand the need for both? We need direction and momentum. Jesus has direction. Well, he always does. But as far as baptism is concerned, okay, I'm setting my sights on the kingdom of God, and I'm here to proclaim it and usher it in. So I'm faced in that direction steadfastly. No wonder Satan comes in immediately and says, fine, you might be looking in the right direction, but if you're not progressing towards it, then big deal. There's still no movement. And so Satan comes right on the heels of this commitment. We saw the same in Moses chapter 1. As soon as Moses has his epiphany with God and understands his purpose in life, then the adversary comes immediately saying, oh, son of man, worship me. We'll see similar things here. If you felt opposition right on the heels of your own baptism, if you felt challenges begin the moment you sent in your mission papers, if some of the challenges of marriage followed quickly on the heels of your sealing in the temple, well, welcome to the norm as far as the adversary is concerned. But what's also normal is for us to be presented with choices every step of the way between wilderness as a good thing or as a bad thing, wilderness as a heaven or a hell, Uh, wilderness where there will be angels to minister, but also wild beasts to come growling in your direction. I always find that interesting. He was with the wild beasts. Lucifer himself is one of the ultimate examples of that, right? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It actually makes me wonder, there's amazing examples in the Old Testament, for example, of people with the wild beasts. Is Jesus going to be a Samson attacked by a lion in the vineyards of Timnath? Or is Jesus going to be a Daniel surrounded by the lions in the den that do him no harm? Will this be the young David with the lion and the bear? 
who he overcomes in preparation for facing his giant. Oh yes, Jesus is there in the wilderness and he chooses the angels. He overcomes the wild beasts. He starves the natural man within him. There's a beast for you. And it does. It's wild because we so often let it run wild within. But not Jesus. The Luke account, by the way, begins in a similar way. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew, but we'll at least let Luke introduce it as well. He says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, which is exactly what should happen after we're baptized, right? That's step four in the fourth article of faith, receive the Holy Ghost. But as soon as as Jesus is filled with the Spirit, he returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And this story is often running. Notice the Spirit is what drew him into the wilderness a place of purification and preparation, as wildernesses typically are. We've mentioned it before. There's the pioneers trekking west. There's Joseph in the sacred grove. There's missionaries at the MTC. There's the places we go to wean ourselves off the wicked world and cut off all distraction until it's just us and the angels. I miss wilderness experiences. And if you think about the children of Israel in their 40 years of wilderness wandering, wander, wander, die, wander, die, well, the the wild beasts within us are supposed to die off during that period so that then we can get to the Jordan River and cross it and come into a land of promises, promises we intend to keep. But we will be tested in the process. And that's what's happening with Jesus. So Matthew 4, let's use this account. It's in many ways the fullest one. Begin verse 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness. Now pay attention to the directions as we see them in this account. The ups and the downs particularly. Which direction does the Spirit want to take Jesus? Up. Take him up into the wilderness. Now the, most, the Matthew version goes on, took him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And it's like, oh great, you, you set up a, a, a booby trap for me? brought me out here and then left me right there facing the adversary himself? No, that's not the case. Uh, In the Lord's Prayer, when it's lead us not into temptation, uh, that's not exactly accurate either. That's not the business God is in. The tests will come without him forcing us into harm's way. Sadly, we end up wandering there ourselves so frequently. So here's a place where the JST does some correction rather than wholesale addition. Rather than being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, the JST says, to be with God, which sounds more like what the Spirit is always after. Come this way, and you will be with God. Come into the wilderness. Leave the wicked world. You see, even after your baptism, there will remain periods of purification to undergo. You've been justified at baptism, but what about sanctified? Not there yet. So keep coming into the wilderness as often as you need. Keep coming up. Keep following the Spirit. Keep passing tests that will (laughs) inexorably come your way. Now verse 2, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. There's a JST correction to that as well. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and had communed with God, 
That's what he'd been doing all this time. He was afterwards and hungered and was left to be tempted of the devil. Interesting change there. The 40 days weren't spent <laughs> going mano a mano with, with Lucifer. Those 40 days were spent communing with God. And isn't that what fasting prepares us for, perhaps better than most other things? Silence the flesh. It takes a while to do so. It takes a while for that wild beast. I mean, it does growl at you, doesn't it? <laughs> the stomach within just growl, snarling, growling at you. Feed me. Feed the natural man. Feed the flesh. And so often it takes a while for that, that beast to be lulled into sleep, realizing that is my master, and I don't growl at it. It controls me. The spirit must be willing, especially when the flesh is weak. The spirit has to be in charge. And so those 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is strengthening his spirit at the expense of the flesh. He is training the body that he's received. These swaddling clothes, the word made flesh, but who's going to be in charge? The word will. And his word will stand. And when his word speaks to the growling beast within, the flesh with all of its hungers, the Logos will say absolutely no. That's what Fast Sunday is our chance to practice. And if you do it for three and a half years, there's 40 days and 40 nights. We just don't do them consecutively. Okay? For us to have practice days, that's what we're trying to do too. We are communing with God. What's interesting is it's only afterward that Jesus is hungered. It's only afterward that he's left to be tempted of the devil. Now, a couple of things here. One uh, is, this, is the adversary's timing. Because we just saw, again, cast not away therefore thy confidence, and, and Satan's just ready to, ch he's chomping at the bit to dive in and stop momentum from building. So he's doing that. And I can just picture him going, no, wait, wait, wait till the end. He's going to be at his absolute lowest ebb. He will have no strength to resist. He'll be on death's doorstep physically. Oh, Satan, you don't get it, do you? At his lowest physically, you're probably right. But at his absolute highest spiritually. I've found that often it's only after I'm breaking my fast that I realize just how hungry I've, I've been. I'm usually hungry at the beginning. As It's more like I'm scared of like, I've got to do this for 24 hours or it's going to be a long time until I have another meal. And it's like my, my, the, the wild beast within is, is whimpering and snarling and like, you can't do this to me. Please don't. It's hard at the beginning until I starve the natural man enough that I put him in his place and he's more docile. He's the one that doesn't have any strength. And spiritually... Man, by the end of the, the, the fast, in some ways, it's like, I mean, I could, I, let's, should we do it another day? You understand? Satan just doesn't understand the power of the Spirit. Never did. And so for, to attack at that moment, the Lord, oh, I'm ready for you now, more than ever. Now to a Jewish, the other thing I wanted to mention, to a Jewish audience, and that's Matthew's audience as he's writing this, as soon as they hear that Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, who do they think of? They think Moses. And sure enough, this is a Moses 2.0. The true lawgiver coming down from Sinai. 
Moses went and into the mountain to commune with God, to receive his law, and came down 40 days later having fasted. Right after this chapter, Matthew 4, is Matthew 5, as Jesus comes to the mountain to give them the new law, the Sermon on the Mount. The parallels here are fascinating. And so for the Jews to think, in fact, Moses did it twice, right? Uh, golden calf experience in between. And to see Jesus beginning his ministry in similar ways. Elijah did the same at the same place. And Elijah, remember John the Baptist was a rough-hewn Elijah, a new Elias. But Jesus was an Elias of sorts as well. And so for Christ to come to end an apostasy in Israel, that's what, that was Elijah's hope in his day. And so all these parallels is, is, are truly fascinating. But one other thing about the temptation that Jesus is about to face, Satan believes he is as hungry as he'll ever be. No better time to come and attack with some kind of lust of the flesh. If you read the book of James, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it describes sin pretty powerfully. And it fits in with what we saw in, this, in, this, in these verses so far, especially the JST additions to it. James says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So that's James's version of Joseph's correction. Like, no, 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 he's not being led by the Spirit to go be tempted by the devil. That's not how God works. James is saying likewise. And then James teaches this, and it's, I don't know if, it's, if this is taught better anywhere else in Scripture than here. James 1 verse 14, But every man is tempted when two conditions are present. Here it is. Number one, when he is drawn away of his own lust. And number two, enticed. You see, the first half, drawn away of his own lust, that's hunger. And the second half, enticed, that's bait. And when those two come together, that's when temptation occurs. Because the object of our affection is right in front of us. The thing we're hungering for is now present, the enticement. And I'm actually hungering for it. There's the lust, the drawn away from, by it. If you think about what the adversary is hoping for, that Jesus has been drawn away into the wilderness. Okay. Can we draw him deeper into it to the point that he begins to hunger after things that aren't, aren't nearby and then somehow present them to him? No wonder Satan is waiting. Let's get to him to the point where, that, where lust can finally hatch within Jesus and he's going to be as hungry for something as ever. And then let's tempt him. Let's offer the bait. If, you, if you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman, if you, if you are trying to catch things, you know the principle that James teaches is true. You have to have convincing bait. But the fish also have to be hungry. Or you'll come home without anything saying, ah, the fish just weren't biting today. Satan was hoping that Jesus would bite. And now he comes with the bait for Jesus to bite on. Verse 3, when the tempter came to him, Luke's version, by the way, just calls him the devil, but tempter, oh, we know exactly who Lucifer is here. What a revealing title. Don't trust him. You know exactly what he's doing. You knew what I was when you picked me up, is the famous statement. So the tempter comes. Anything that comes out of his mouth, no matter how smooth 
It is. There's a temptation lurking somewhere behind it, so don't fall for it. You know who he is. The tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. You can provide the bait for yourself. I'm just suggesting it. But notice how he's doing it. The initial word from the adversaries, the tempter's lips, was if. Pay attention in the Gospels to the word if whenever it appears. There's some fascinating insights hidden behind a two-letter word. You will see very similar, almost identical ifs at the end of Christ's ministry when he's suffering on the cross. And the people there at the base are taunting him, wonder, asking him, if you're the Son of God, then take yourself down from the cross. If you have the power you claim to, then use it to save yourself. Do you see how this is coming full circle? That's the first temptation of the adversary and the last temptation of those that are serving him. And both beginning and end and every moment in between, Jesus is able to overcome those temptations. But that's a huge if. If thou be the Son of God. I mean, if, if you have all power, if you're a God, or at least his Son, who better to use the power on than yourself? I mean, if a God can't use his power to, in self-promoting, self-gratifying ways, then what was the good of having all that power? You starting to sense Satan's mentality? That no wonder he approached the, the premortal plan the way that he did. It was all about him. I want to be the go-to guy. I want the glory. I want, so I'll do it my way and have my plan and I'll take the Father's glory and ultimately the Father's throne in the process. It's about me. It's a self-serving kind of Messiah that, that Lucifer was offering to be, but not Jesus. I'll descend below all things in order to bless everyone else that's now above me. It was never about him and it's certainly not going to be about him now. So that's one side of this temptation. In a way, this is an interesting reversal of the Jacob and Esau story from the Old Testament that Matthew's Jewish audience probably would have thought of. To think in that case, well, Esau's the bad guy. He didn't realize how important the birthright was. And so what did he do? He sold it for a mess of pottage. Well, in this case, it's not that Jacob was the tempter there, but Lucifer definitely is the tempter here. And what's he offering Jesus? A mess of pottage. Just a stone sandwich. Turn these rocks into bread and feast. Satisfy your physical hunger. And yet Jesus, unlike Esau, sees right through it and says, mere pottage? No. I will hold on to my birthright. And it's that birthright that's the other half of Satan's temptation. Because he's ifing it. He's asking, he's wondering, he's trying to get Jesus to doubt. Am I the son of God? Because if you are, you'll have the power to do this. So prove it. Prove that you are. Now we're going to see the Lord's response to it in just a second. But before we do, can we sit with the stones for a moment longer? Because on the one hand, what did, we just heard about stones in the previous chapter at the baptism of Jesus. When Matthew, excuse me, when John the Baptist has said, don't, even, don't think that you're better than other people just because you're seed of Abraham. Because from these stones, God can raise up seed unto Abraham. 
Oh, if God can do that, <laughs> certainly you can turn some of these stones into bread. It's amazing the power God has to touch rocks and make them glow. Ask the brother of Jared about that. To raise up of stones seed unto Abraham. At the triumphal entry, as the Pharisees say, tell these people to stop. They're proclaiming you the king of kings. And Jesus is like, well, yeah, they should. And if they don't, then the very stones around us will erupt in praise for their creator. It's amazing the power of God to do exactly that. But not in some kind of self-serving way. Not to prove to people that I really am the son of God. No, I'm not touching stones to shine light on myself. I'm trying to help you bring some light into your darkness. It is amazing what God can do with mere rocks. But there's another way to look at it as well. And that's to think about the kinds of stones that Satan throws at us. The kinds of things that he does. I mean, you think of Stephen being stoned in the book of Acts. Here Jesus is, if this is a stoning of sorts that the adversary is attempting. And if I can just get you to think that you can find spiritual sustenance out of mere stones. He's going to be throwing them in our direction left and right. It's tragic to see us pick up worldly rocks and think we will be able to satisfy spiritual hungers. Because it's impossible. What do the angels say to the women at the empty tomb? Why seek ye the living among the dead? You'll never find life in a dead place like this. You will never gain calories out of concrete. <laughs> there is no refreshment in a rock. So drop it and move on and seek life in living places. I hope we can do a better job of avoiding the stones Satan's throwing at us. Don't sink your teeth into them. I'll just put it like that. By the way, Matthew's version, stones is plural. Command these stones be made bread. Whereas in Luke's version, he simply says, if thou be the son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Just one. Probably picked one nice and round that kind of looked like a roll or maybe one that was kind of curved. Here's a croissant. Just some, let your mind wander and just this one little pebble. Oh, make it a morsel and satisfy self. It's interesting that if Satan can't bury us with, among the boulders of temptation, because that's just, that's too shock and awe. It's like, no, I would never do all those things. Okay, fine. How about just this one? Just lower your defenses, lower your standards just this once or in this one thing. It's almost negligible compared to all the good that you're doing. Just one little rock. And yet, what does the Lord say in the Doctrine and Covenants? I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Not a single stone, not one little pebble. I won't succumb to a thing. And Jesus is just that perfect and striving to help us perfect, become perfect even as he is. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 4, he answered and said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Notice the first phrase out of the Lord's mouth. It is written. 
So he's not speaking here. He's quoting here. And what is he quoting? He's quoting scripture. We'll see that the specific verse in just a moment. But even the, the realization that how does the Lord fight the adversary? With the word of God. I mean, think about it. The armor of God is mostly defensive. And you have a helmet of salvation to protect the head and a breastplate of righteousness to protect the chest. Your loins are good about with truth and your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But it's, and you have a shield of faith that seems to protect everything. But all of that is merely defensive. When I played football, I had pads for just about everything. But to just to sit around and wait to get hit, that's kind of rough. Sometimes you want to initiate. And it's not just defense, it's offense. And so you do get one weapon in the armor of God, the sword. And what does the sword represent? The spirit and the word. The word makes it strong and the spirit makes it sharp. And together it can cut asunder all the wiles of the adversary. It can cut to the chase and help you see what things as they really are. And that's what the Lord is doing. He is wielding the word. And as the word made flesh, no one has ever been more adept with this armament than he. To understand what he does in all three temptations, he unsheathes the word of God and fights back with the word and with the spirit. Know your scriptures. There's the word. And know which one applies in any given moment. That's the spirit. You can have the entire arsenal at your command. But you have to know with the Spirit's help which verse applies to this situation. Otherwise, the Word alone might point you in all kinds of different possible directions. Now let the Spirit determine this is the verse for this moment. And what was the verse for this one? Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. Listen to them in their entirety because Jesus is just dropping hints. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee, these 40 years in the wilderness, sound like 40 days in the wilderness, to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And Jesus is accomplishing all of that during this period. He's being humbled. He's proving himself. He's humbling himself, proving himself, showing God what's in his heart. We saw that in the baptism and how Jesus was fulfilling all righteousness by condescending to come down to that level, proving that he would be humble, that he would witness unto the Father, that he would keep his commandments in all things. That's what the Israelites were doing through their years of wilderness wanderings. Keep going in Deuteronomy, though. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. I love that the Lord picks that verse to push back against the adversary's temptation. I'm not going to live by bread alone. I'm going to live by the word that comes from the mouth of God. As far as the bread alone... That's the irony. They were told, don't live by bread alone when they were given bread from heaven every day. Bread alone? That's a, they only got bread alone. Yeah, there was the quail miracle too, but for the most part, 40 years, 
Man, I hope there was some mana helper or mana pot pie or just something you could do with it besides just scoop it up and, and force it down. The Lord was teaching them, though, every one of these morsels comes with commandments. And will you learn to keep them? Will you gather just the day's allotment? Will you not go out seeking things on the Sabbath? Will you get the double portion the day before? Will you act quickly since if, you not, if enough time passes in the day, the manna simply melts and you've missed your opportunity? There were so many lessons we studied last year about the manna. This is the one that the Lord is drawing upon. Even though God was giving them bread, and though I haven't had any for the last 40 days, it's God's word that I've been feasting upon. We'll see this in John later. My meat is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Oh, I'm stuffed. Ah, all that I've been doing these last 40 days. I'm not interested in what you're offering me. But one other thing that I think the Lord is hinting at. I won't live by bread alone. That's how I'm saying no to you in this temptation of change stones to bread. But living by every word that proceeded forth from the mouth of God, that overcomes your, the other half of your temptation. Remember what it was? If you are the Son of God, He's not just preying upon our weaknesses, our behaviors, our self-centeredness or self-servingness. He's preying upon our identity. Are you really the Son of God? That's Esther. That's uh, Daniel, that's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's all the, it's Joseph in Egypt. It's any Israelite in enemy territory where names are changed and identities are robbed and say, you are not, this, this is Satan with Moses. You are not a son of God. You're a son of man. So worship me. <sighs> to the same with Jesus himself. You're not the son of God. If you are, then prove it. Prove you have the power. And when the Lord says, A, I'm not hungry. I'm not going to live by bread alone. B, I know who I am. Because I live by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. And what's the very last word that had proceeded forth from the mouth of God? Just a chapter earlier. Remember what precedes the temptations? The baptism. And what had the Father said? Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. How, oh, Lucifer, I have been living off that, those divine words for the last month and a half. I am God's son. He said so. And there's no if about it. No wonder Satan had to change his tactics. Darn it. He knows. Okay, fine. So temptation number two. Verse 5 and 6, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. Wow. The adversary, the devil, the tempter, taking you to the temple of all places? No, look for the JST. Then Jesus was taken into the holy city, and the Spirit setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple. Then the devil came unto him and said, and here comes temptation number two. But you see what the adversary is after? See, it, what's amazing to me is, A, Jesus doesn't stay there in the wilderness, surrounded by stones that, yeah, maybe do kind of look like rolls and bagels and bread loaves. And, no, 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 quit thinking. I'm not going to stay here, stand here, and, and rationalize things. I'm not going to reason with the devil. 
The Lord says he'll come and let us reason together, but he doesn't stay and reason with the adversary. Nope, I'm out of here. He gives an absolute no, quotes the perfect scripture to do it, and then leaves at the Spirit's direction. In fact, where does he go to? The temple. If you are facing temptation and both the hunger and the bait are present, and you're like, uh-oh, this is, this is a tinderbox. This is exactly what can't happen. If I weren't hungry, I could hang around the, the, the stones. And my lack of hunger would offset the abundance of bait. Or vice versa. If there were no bait around, then I could be as hungry as possible and I, I can't satisfy it. So I guess I haven't sinned. In this case... The hunger and the bait are right there. So what does Jesus do? He leaves and goes to a place, a new place, where he can be with God. That's what he had tried to do by going into the wilderness, out of the world entirely. Well, I'm still out of the world, even though now that I'm back in it, as long as I'm at the house of my father. So the spirit brings him to the temple, sets him on the pinnacle, and then the devil comes and says, if thou be the Son of God. <laughs> Seriously? Did you not catch my hint? The last scripture that I quoted? I am. He just said so. You don't think I can remember the, the passing of one page? <sighs> if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. You see, two can play that game. You know your scriptures? Well, so do I. You quote Deuteronomy? I'll quote Psalms. And Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Oh, there's some more stones here, I guess. These aren't the stones to satisfy you. These are stones that really would hurt. And of course, your precious father in heaven wouldn't let anything happen to his dear little son. Well, if you're that confident, then prove that too. In fact, this wouldn't even be self-serving, would it? I mean, yeah, I guess when, he, when they come in and save the day and you don't end up getting hurt from this headlong leap from the temple mount. I guess that is a little self-serving, but really, this is a, as selfless a demonstration of your glory as you could ask, because we're, we're at Times Square. We're, we're, well, watch the ball drop. Well, let's watch you drop, and all the world will be gathered there. This is the most populous place in Israel. And there at the pinnacle, everyone's going to be looking up and seeing the man teetering on the edge. People seem to be drawn to, you've got rubberneckers drawn to those kinds of spectacles, especially the thought of what might happen. Then take the lordly leap. And as you are plummeting to the earth and all eyes are fixed on you as you descend, Imagine the shock and awe of all these people you care so much about. These same people that you are trying to convince that you're the Messiah. <laughs> well, when the angels come swooping down to bear you up, mission accomplished, my messianic friend. Everything you've been waiting for will take place. Talk about jump-starting the kingdom of God. Then 
jump, start. Let's get going. You understand what an interesting temptation this would be? People could know. What a temptation it must have been for a Jacob or a, an Alma to just, I mean, signs are what Sherem and Korahor were asking for. In, those, in that case, they left it with God. And God did provide the sign. It didn't change their heart. But maybe it woke up the people. In this case, would it change the people's heart? Or would they be shock and awe? Okay, this guy is amazing. This evil Knievel leap and somehow survived it. Maybe we should take him seriously. But is, which sense is that appealing to? A sense of the obvious or a sense of the spirit that confirms truth in small and simple ways? No, I can't leapfrog a longer process by leaping from the temple. I won't do it. Well, how does the Lord respond? Verse 7. Jesus said unto him, It is written again. Luke's version, it is said. Either way. Take the, the oral tradition. Take the written word. Either way. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus is back to drawing on Deuteronomy. This time, chapter 6, verse 16, which says, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God, as ye tempted him in Massah. You see, so many times the Israelites tempted the Lord their God because they didn't have food and they didn't have water. Now we're back to temptation number one. Uh, Jesus knows his scriptures perfectly. And yeah, adversary, you might rest the scriptures to your own destruction. You might cherry pick verses out of context and try to throw them in my face to justify things. And sadly, people have done that through so much of, of religious history also. If I can find, this is, that's, that's the word devoid of the Spirit. That's the rusty sword. That's turning it back on yourself. It's using scriptures in ways that were not intended. And that's what the adversary did with Psalms. And so the Lord responds with a correct verse. I will not tempt the Lord my God. It's actually interesting to compare use of scripture here. Because the scripture the devil used was based on rewards. And the verse the Lord used was based on responsibility. Satan focused on blessings. Jesus focused on commandments. Satan, what's in it for me? The Lord, what would the Father have me do? So back to the drawing board, Mr. Devil. What do you have up your sleeve next? Third temptation, verse 8 and 9. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. Now, by now, we should probably expect a JST because we know that the Lord doesn't follow the devil around. He doesn't go at his bidding. And sure enough, there's a JST that corrects it. Jesus was in the spirit and it taketh him up to this exceeding high mountain. Okay? Again, he's leaving. Even though it was at the temple, good place, but the adversary even attacked me here. Then I'll leave and go somewhere even higher, an exceeding high mountain. The mountain of the Lord, well, he's got a lot of them. So he goes up with the Spirit's guidance to this mountain, and the Spirit showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now it makes you wonder, what's the Father's intent in having the Spirit bring Jesus up and show him the kingdoms of the world? 
in this, in, in some ways, is this your mission call, son? This is your mission, your mission area. Please don't think that you're confined just to the Israelites. You are going to save the, the heathen, the Gentiles, everyone being gathered into the kingdom of God. In my greeny area as a brand new missionary, uh, just outside San Juan, still urban area, I remember early on my trainer taking me to the tallest apartment building in, in that part of town and opening up the windows when we got to the top and looking around in all directions to see our responsibility, to see the field of our endeavor. And boy, did the weight start to rest upon my shoulders. These are the people I'm supposed to, that I'm called to care for. And for Jesus to be taken to this high mountain, to be shown all the kingdoms of the world. Again, part of it, this is what you're responsible for. Maybe this is what you're up against. Maybe this is the competition or the opposition because those are the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Well, thy kingdom come. You're going to bring a true kingdom of godly glory that will overcome all these kingdoms of the world. But there, while he's looking, that's when the adversary comes. The JST says, And the devil came unto him again and said, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Oh, there's another if, but it's a different one. I'm no longer questioning your identity. You seem to be convinced of that. But can I question your commitment to godly behavior? Can I question what you're going to do? So if you'll fall down, if you'll come to my level, if you'll worship me, look what I can give you. All of this. Now it's interesting because with the help of Luke, we see two added details. Number one, when he's shown all the kingdoms of the world, the Luke account says he showed it in a moment of time. And again, that's either God showing all of this and helping him see the, the vast expanse of his re responsibilities. This is like Moses chapter 1 when Moses sees everything, every particle of the earth, every person upon it. Uh, that would have to be sped up time right there. And in an instant, all of a sudden, he sees it all. And these are the people I'm, I've, co I've come to, to save. Wow. On the other hand, is this the adversary showing all his kingdoms and it only takes a moment to do so because that's as long as they last. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, an hour of pomp, an hour of show. That's all it is. It's, a, it's the foam on the wave. It's a bubble and it's about to pop. Think about housing bubbles and... <laughs> economic bubbles that then burst and leave people worse off than when they started. Be aware of just how fleeting the world's glory is and let the kingdom of God come with its eternal glory. That's one hint Luke gives us. The other, Luke 4 verse 6, when the adversary says, worship me and I'll give you all this power, he says, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. And I want to give it to you now, if you'll just worship me. Now, one thing you have to know, because this is interesting doctrine. Wait a minute. Satan has power. He has uh, glory. He has control over all of this. 
Thus it was delivered unto me. Really? Well, he does claim to be the God of this world, but was glory and power over it given to him? Please remember, when you first met him, he was called the tempter. Don't fall for everything he says. Don't believe that he's being honest here. Oh, no, it's mine. The other thing, though, interesting his language, this power and this glory. That perfectly describes what Lucifer was after all along. War in heaven, I want God's glory. I want God's power. So give it to me. And he's assuming that Jesus would want the same thing. I mean, you won the war in heaven. <laughs> Certainly, now you're getting all the power and glory. I can give you even more of that. And the Lord would say, that's not why I agreed to be the one to come. That wasn't it at all. There's actually another interesting irony there. <laughs> to say, worship me and I'll give you all these worldly kingdoms. I could picture the Lord with a smile saying to him, A, they're not yours to give. And B, even if they were, they're going to be mine anyway. <laughs> What's the prophecy about the second coming and the millennial reign? The kingdoms of this world will become... Can you hear Handel's Messiah? This, this is a great song for this one too. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, what you're offering me, Lucifer, is something that's already been promised me. And it will come in the Lord's time and in the Lord's way. In the war chapters in the Book of Mormon, I, off the top of my head, I should have looked this up. I can't remember who the enemy is, if it's Amalekiah or if it's Amaron, one of their kind. Uh, and with Captain Moroni bearing down on them, they, they say, well, look, we'll surrender this city if you'll give us all of, all, all, all of our prisoners of war back. Just fair exchange. And the Nephite general just kind of laughed and said, uh, nice offer. I don't think you have the manpower to defend that city anyway. And so we'll keep our prisoners, thank you very much, and we'll conquer your city. How's that for a win-win for us and a lose-lose for you? And he totally called their bluff. Because as the army was coming, what did the Lamanites in the city do? They fled, they surrendered, they turned tail and ran. Sure enough, they didn't have the men to defend it. So don't fall. You see what the adversary is doing? Exactly what, he's, it's, all, it's all bluff and bluster. It's, I'll give you all of this if you just do it my way. And it's like, no, I can get it the right way. I actually remember this hitting me really strongly when I was teaching teenagers. And at that age, teenagers and young adults, so often the stones to bread temptation is so strong within them when it comes to morality. And it's, it's sexual hunger they want to satisfy. That's the bread they're after. But unfortunately, that's, that's a hard rock to swallow if you're trying to consume it outside the bounds the Lord has set. But the irony of it is, if you'll stay within the Lord's bound, He offers it to you. That human intimacy, marital intimacy, is a gift of God, but it's confined to marriage. And within those confines, there is no more glorious gift that God gives us to allow us to become one with each other 
and one with him in an act of creation, which is God's territory. As I tried to explain to these youth and young adults, Satan is trying to get you to take something that God has already promised. And if you'll simply wait, the kingdoms of the world will be Christ's. And all that the adversary is offering you prematurely will come in the Lord's right way. There will be no bitter aftertaste because it's real bread, bread of life, not stone. So don't leap off the temple into areas that you're not supposed to dive into yet. Don't fall for a premature promise of worldly kingdoms when it's celestial realms God has waiting for you, if you'll wait for them. And the Lord knows it and is thus able to resist. By the way, this is another place, though, that you can really spot the differences of direction. Because in every instance, the Lord is being brought up by the Spirit and being dragged down by the adversary. And the first, let's go up into the Mount of Temptation, is what it's usually called. But even up at that altitude, what's the devil doing? Look down at the stones at your feet, not up to the angels that are communing with you. Next, what does the Lord do? The Spirit brings the Lord to the temple, the pinnacle of it. Let's come up to the mountain of the Lord and get to the very top peak. Highest point. And then what does the adversary do? Cast yourself down from this place and come crashing to its base. Where does, he, where does the Spirit take the Lord from there? Up to an exceeding high mountain. And then what does the adversary have him do? Look down at all the kingdoms of the earth. In fact, fall down and worship me. Interesting language. The adversary is always after falls. And he's trying to get the fall of Christ right here. If I can nip this, this ministry in the bud can you imagine the, the Gospels ending in chapter 4? And that's it. He came with so much promise, so much potential. And yet he fell down instead of lifting us up. Well, the Lord would have none of that either. So verse 10, his third and final response. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan. I keep leaving you. It's your turn. Get away from me. Get thee hence. In Luke's version, a phrase that we're used to from later in the Gospels, get thee behind me, Satan. When Jesus quotes that to Peter in Matthew 16, oh, when we get there, please remember, Jesus is quoting himself. And he's saying something to Peter in echo of what he had said to Satan. And so much of what he says then especially with the help of the JST of Matthew 16, about savoring the things that be of man instead of the things that be of God. That's not me. I will not savor the things that be of man. It's God that I am trying to become like. I'm the Word made flesh. I dwelt among you. I'm full of grace and truth. I'm not full of pride. I won't go there. So get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee hence, Satan. I'm not going to stand around reasoning again. I'm going to rebuke you and send you away. For it is written, one more scripture, 
to send you packing with. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Only. The only one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. First commandment. No graven images. Second commandment. I'm not going to take God's name in vain. And I've taken it. I'm his son. He said so. I'm not going to do that in vain. Third great commandment. I'll honor my father in heaven. Fifth commandment. You understand? Just work your way through them. Christ will keep them all. But here I will not serve anyone but God. We saw this so often last year in the Old Testament. God is a jealous God, and it's jealousy for our sake, not his. He's fiercely loyal. That's what divine jealousy is, and he wants us to be fiercely loyal back because he's the only God that can bless us with the things that we need. Now, what's interesting here is it was very clear that Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy, round one, clear that Satan was quoting Psalms in round two, and that Jesus responded with another dose of Deuteronomy himself. This one? Where is that? Now, it's, it's understood, it's implied through so much of the Old Testament. We just reviewed some of the Ten Commandments as, as evidence. But what's fascinating to me is that the clearest quotation of that is actually found in the book of Moses, JST, not in the Old Testament. And I, I sincerely doubt that Joseph Smith in, was making up stories in Moses chapter 1 and thought, ooh, the Christian world has always scratched its head about what scripture Jesus is quoting in the third temptation. What a cool place to sneak it in. And then he raised my fingerprints. Seriously? Joseph did not know the Bible well enough to even contemplate that, that ruse. But notice this in Moses chapter 1, verse 15. Worship God, for him only shalt thou serve. That is when Moses was being tempted by the devil, in very similar ways to what Jesus, the Messiah, Moses 2.0, is facing with the devil here. Thank you, Joseph, for restoring truth that Jesus knew and quoted to the adversary. And this one finally worked. Verse 11, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him, which is what Jesus had been after all along. Interesting that if we'll simply resist the devil, and yeah, we might have to do it a time and a time and another time, repeatedly, but resist the devil and the angels come. Sound a little like the first vision? Darkness displaced by light? Or how about the verse that we see in James, chapter 4, verse 7? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ah, that's interesting. If I'll just stand up to him. See, here's the thing. One of us is going to back down sooner or later. One of us will surrender to the other. Satan is banking on you doing it first. And the irony there is, remember in World War II studies, that you learned the German word blitzkrieg? And blitzkrieg means lightning war. And that was Hitler's hope. That if he can do these quick thrusts into enemy territory, a lightning war, and this bolt out of the blue comes in before the other people, the unsuspecting, are prepared for me, then I'll defeat them and they'll only have time to surrender. That's what Hitler was banking on, lightning strikes. Same with Lucifer. What's interesting is he is incredibly, well, I'll put it this way. He's high on persistence, but low on endurance. You understand the difference? 
He persists and he tries and he tries and he tries again. Uh, I lost him. Where did he go? Oh, temple? I'll, I'll go find him there. I, I lost him again. Darn it. Where is he? Is he any high mountain? Start the climb. And so Lucifer will keep after it, pestering you over and over and over again. But each attack doesn't last very long. And that, if we can understand that, that completely changes our approach to him. Because it's not a matter of, I have to resist this temptation constantly for the rest of my life. No. You'll, you might have to resist that temptation repeatedly through the rest of your life. But not continuously. Because if you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now, I wish I could say that was a permanent flight. No, he, you resist, he retreats, and unfortunately he regroups and then retries and attacks again. In fact, you get that hinted at in the Luke version of this. In the Matthew, it was the devil leaves him and the angels come. In the Luke version, when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Those last three words are the real bummer. It was just a season. But that's important to know also. Because if you think that one moment of valiant resistance was enough, and now the battle's over, Unfortunately, if you think that's the case, you start putting your armor back in, in storage. You stop sharpening your sword because the battle's over. I can retire now under my vine and fig tree. Oh, no. It's only for a season. And my, my wife sees it constantly in the world of addiction recovery, that people... In fact, the language used, people will say, I am in recovery. That's a present tense. As opposed to, I, I recovered, which is a past tense. No. It, it used to bother me, actually, when I would hear recordings from AA meetings and hear when people would say, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And I kept thinking, you're not anymore. You repented, you've been forgiven, you're sober. When they say, I'm, an, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober for 48 years. And it's like, that's, that's like my entire lifetime. Half a century, you're good. Quit calling yourself an alcoholic. Now, I think there's some truth to that. Don't define yourself by your worst moments. But I have come, especially with my wife's help, to see the beauty of that admission. That the temptations just around the corner, if I allow it to be. The bait is present, so I don't allow myself to get hungry. I fill myself on, on better things. I'm in recovery. But Satan is only a short season away. And so I'm, I'm, I'm constantly sharpening my sword. I'm always buffing my armor. And I'm still in training because the same intensity on my part that allowed me to resist the devil the first time, that had him flee, is the same intensity that I need to resist in the second and the third and the 500th and the 10 millionth and however long it takes until he's finally cast into the bottomless pit. And he who holds the keys locks it shut. I hope that we can resist the devil. 
every time he comes. The Savior did exactly that. And with that, the story ends. In fact, in the Matthew version, the very next verse says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And we're off and running. He resisted the devil. He overcame him. The angels came to minister unto Jesus and right on the heels. He's not thinking about himself and basking in the glow of his victory. He's thinking of others. And he catches wind that his cousin, his forerunner, is, has been imprisoned. I got to go. I got to serve. I got to help. <laughs> I'm not the only one that's been facing adversaries. John has faced a huge one of his own. But what's interesting in this case there's a JST of this passage that changes things considerably. It's not a matter of the angels coming to congratulate Jesus, but rather Jesus sending the angels to comfort and console his friend. In the JST of Matthew 4, verse 11 and 12, And now Jesus knew that John was cast into prison, and he sent angels and behold, they came and ministered unto him, and Jesus departed into Galilee. The, in the JST, the angels weren't coming to minister to Jesus. He was sending the angels to minister unto John, which I think is fascinating. Now, one last thing to say about these temptations, and, and then we're, we've kind of hit the midpoint uh, of our lesson, of our study this week. These three temptations, you've got to master them because that's all there are. Satan has so many ways to approach us. Remember King Benjamin loses count? And he says, I can't tell you every way you can commit sin. That's how creative and original the adversary is. But on the other hand, he's, he's not that creative. Or I should say, he has to be that creative because he only has three ingredients to work with. And so, what can I do with these three types of temptation? and dress them up with some flavor here, add a little spice there, or put them in a different order or different guys, but they always boil down to those three. In, in music, they often, there's many a, a symphony called variations on a theme. And so here's the theme, and then it's just going to be all kinds of variations. That's all it is. Uh, certain chord progressions you hear in music. And, and it's, it's the same chord progression. But it's amazing how many songs come out of the same progression of chords. And the same is true of this. Really, there are only three weapons up the adversary's sleeve. And they are changing stones to bread, leaping from the temple, and worshiping Satan in exchange for all the kingdoms and the power and the glory of the world. Can I give you a chart, since we seem to enjoy those? At least I do. If you consider these as three types of temptations instead of simply three temptations, then here's the type. The first one, stones to bread, is a lust of the flesh. It's a sin of physical appetite. The second, leap from the temple, is the problem of pride. The world's going to see you. I mean, they'll come rushing. So throw yourself down so they can then lift you up. He's appealing to that sense of self on Jesus's part. And then the third, earthly kingdoms, that's pretty straightforward. That's worldliness. That's materialism. Wealth and pride and, excuse me, wealth and power and prestige, it plays into pride, okay? That these three are well connected. But then think about what the adversary does with, with the whole collection. 
Stones to bread, lust of the flesh. He's trying to satisfy the body and its needs, some kind of hunger. Whereas pride is there to satisfy the mind, what I think of myself, what everyone else seems to think of me, of me too. And then worldliness and materialism, that in a way satisfies both. Both the body and the mind can be well taken care of. This hit me in the Old Testament years ago. Uh, and we talked about this last year. When we met, there were only three kings of united Israel. Uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the kingdom splits and we got north and south and problems from then on out. Only three had it all together. And it dawned on me once when I was studying it. They all three fell. Men of incredible potential and goodness and chosenness. And they all fell succumbing to a different kind of sin. First, King Saul, what happened to him? Well, the glory and power went to his head. And when they came back after David and Goliath, singing that Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands? Wait a minute, you're giving him more glory than me? How dare you? Saul succumbed to pride. Fast forward and what did David do? Well, he succumbed to the lust of the flesh when he saw Bathsheba bathing on from his roof. And then Solomon... Yeah, seven years building the Lord's house, but then 13 building his own. So many wives and concubines. Why? To have all these diplomatic relations and marry into the kingdoms of the world so that the wealth of the world could continue flowing into the coffers of King Solomon. Stones to bread, there's King David. Leap from the temple, there's King Saul. Kingdoms of the world, there's King Solomon. And again, to put in perspective who Jesus is, the same sins that brought down the kings of united Israel couldn't touch the king of kings. He overcame them all. Now, at the end of this year, when we get to the book of Revelation, which is such a fitting climax to the New Testament, you will meet Babylon in so many different guises, so many different forms. One of them you will meet is a, a, a whore, a prostitute, dressed in scarlet. She represents the religious aspect of Babylon, the philosophical aspect of Babylon, the ideological aspect of Babylon. And she is turning stones to bread every chance she can. She's trying to convince people to give in to the lusts of the flesh, to satisfy those kinds of appetites, and, and that it's all okay to do. Sound like the ideologies of the world? Eat, drink, and be merry, or good is evil, and evil is good. If I can convince you that it's right, then of course you'll succumb to it. It's all, it's all fine. So beware of the scarlet whore. The second that you'll see, or another aspect of Babylon in the book of Revelation, is the beast. And the beast represents political Babylon. We talk about the American eagle, or the British lion, or the Russian bear. Beasts set on devouring one another. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, okay? So to have that power, that pride, that's leaping from the temple. And you see that in the beasts of Babylon. And then third, the earthly kingdoms. What do you see in, in the book of Revelation? You see a merchant city. Babylon itself, and this is the economic aspect of it. Buying and selling everything you could possibly want, including the souls of men. Well, look at all these kingdoms of the earth and the glory and power thereof and worship me and they're all yours for the taking. I find it fascinating that 
through Old Testament history, through the prophecy of the last days, we are still being hunted by the wild beasts of the wilderness that Jesus overcame so long ago. If you'll even pay attention elsewhere in Scripture, the Book of Mormon is the best example I can think of. You will see these three temptations come together over and over and over again. Turn to 1 Nephi 13, 8 and 9. And he describes the great and abominable church, a.k.a. the great and spacious building from his father's dream, and lets you know what they're after. Behold the gold and the silver and the silks and the scarlets and the fine twined linen and the precious clothing. How's that for temptation number three? The worldliness, the materialism. And the harlots. How's that for temptation number one? The lust of the flesh. Those are the desires of this great and abominable church. And also for the praise of the world. There's pride. Leap from the temple. Show how important you are. For the praise of the world do they destroy the saints of God and bring them down into captivity. The direction Lucifer's always leading us. You understand now what we're up against with this great and spacious building? It's built of the stones that Satan wanted Jesus to turn into bread. It floats above the earth as high as the pinnacle of the temple. And in fact, it's made to look just like the earthly kingdoms that the adversary is offering us. Fast forward in the Book of Mormon, and when Nephi passes the mantle to his brother Jacob, there is wickedness in Jacob's day, and he calls it out. And it's the same three temptations that we just studied. Jacob chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Now it came to pass that the people of Nephi, under the reign of the second king, began to grow hard in their hearts and indulge themselves somewhat in wicked practices. Guess what they are? Such as like unto David of old, desiring many wives and concubines, and also Solomon his son. There's stones to bread. Yea, and they also began to search much gold and silver. There's kingdoms of the world. And began to be lifted up somewhat in pride. There's leap from the temple. Later, when you get to Mosiah 11 and see King Noah and his wicked priests come onto the scene, what are they after? Whoredoms, temptation number one. High taxes, temptation number three in order to be lifted up in the pride of their hearts and look down upon the people that are beneath them, temptation number two. It's all the same stuff. Satan tweaks it and varies the theme, but he hasn't come up with a new theme since the war in heaven. Why would he have to? They always seem to work. When you see the wicked of Ammonihah, same problems. The doctrine of Korahor, same problems. You understand that all of them, in some ways, are sins against patience, <laughs> sins against trust in God. If you'll just w wait and, and have faith and believe and trust and I'm going to come through for you, I will. I will give you, you don't have to ch change stones to bread. I'm the bread of life. I'll offer myself to you. You don't have to leap from the temple. I want to bring you up to the top of the temple myself. And the kingdoms of the world are yours for the taking if you'll wait to receive them in the right way. No, there are better ways. And again, if we'll have faith in Christ, we'll have much less to repent of. And isn't that what we covenanted when we were baptized? The Holy Ghost will lead us in that direction. We just have to endure to the end. This is the doctrine of Christ, and we have to overcome the adversary every step of the way. My friends, I, I hope that our study thus far has been helpful in seeing what the adversary's up to. It's, we're watching game film 
<laughs> because we've got a, a, a game to play, and it's no game. It's a battle, and the battle is raging. If we know how the Savior overcame these three temptations, then we'll know how to overcome all the temptations that Satan throws our way. That's not to say that we'll overcome them all, because we are weak. And sometimes our hunger does come when there's bait present. Sometimes it, the loftiness of our view from the Temple Mount gets to our head. And sometimes we're a little too impatient in seeking the kingdoms of the world. But I will say this. The same Savior who knew how to overcome those temptations himself knows how to help us overcome the consequences of succumbing to them. So if we're not as good at, as Jesus was at, at our own times of, of wilderness, when we're on the mount of our own temptation, may we at least trust in a Lord who came to the kingdom for such a time as this. By the time you finish Matthew 4, or get about halfway through Luke 4, the temptations of Christ are behind him. Now remember, Satan only leaves for a season. He'll be back. But what will Jesus do in this season when he's free from the adversary for a while? Well, he begins building the kingdom that he's come to construct. He begins a mortal ministry that will conclude on Calvary, but bring us all back to God, ultimately. What we see, if well, we're going to go to the Luke version here first, okay? Because by the time you finish the temptations of Christ in Matthew 4, it's turned the page and we're Matthew 5 and we're Sermon on the Mount. We'll be doing that in two weeks because we have some John to, to bring in in, 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 the, in the meantime. But Matthew 5, Jesus is on a new mount. We went from Mount of Temptation to Mount of Beatitudes. And Jesus is coming down with the law of God as Moses 2.0. We will see that soon. And it's the most magnificent sermon you could ask for. But there's some things that have to happen before he begins to preach that sermon. He's got some other sermons up his sleeve. And he's got some other disciples to bring with him. The ministry's just beginning. If you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 15, right on the heels of overcoming the final temptation, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Those temptations did not rob him of the Spirit because he resisted them all. But now that I've overcome the devil, let me help other people do the same. Let me begin this mortal ministry. I, was, I grew up in Nazareth. I went down to, to Jordan to be baptized of John. I went off into the wilderness to be tempted, well, to be with God and happened to be tempted of the devil. But now it's time to come home because that's really where my ministry will begin. It starts in the home. And so he goes back to Galilee and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. His fame is spreading. His ministry is expanding. What do they think of him? What have they heard these echoes of rumors they got 30 years before from shepherds and, and wise men, people in the temple, Simeon and Anna and things that they'd said. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Well, better go to Nazareth to find out. And that's where this stage of the story begins. What will people who grew up with him think of him? What will the response be to those who can take him for granted? We're seeing cultural Christianity here. 
and what will its response to the Savior be? Verse 16 and 17 of Luke 4, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, so now we get to, uh, uh, this is a, a backward glance, kind of flashback. What did Jesus do during these last 18 years since we last saw him at the temple? Well, here's his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up for to read. Now, I don't know how often he read in the synagogue, but at least his custom was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Here's a good, good Jewish boy, a good son of the covenant. And so every Sabbath day, he honors it. It's his father's day after all. And he goes to the synagogue to hear his father's word. And in some ways to hear his own word since Jehovah is the God of the Old Testament. But he stands up to read scripture. And that's often the case. If you're going to use the word of God, he's at a higher level than we are. So we better rise to allow God's words to come from our mouth. Not some lower mortal, lowly level. So he stands up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And here our, our eyes should light up. Because there was no more messianic prophet in the Old Testament than Isaiah. And here's the Messiah himself back in his hometown. Home synagogue. Meeting in a sacrament meeting of the Nazareth first ward. And he asks, could you hand me the Isaiah scroll, please? And he begins to look for a particular passage. He would have been scrolling for quite some time because it's not till the end. Isaiah 61 is the passage he's going to read. It says, when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And now he begins to quote. Now, hold on here. Hold your horses. This is something we've seen every Saturday for as long as we can remember. Every Jewish Sabbath, this little boy, Jesus, now becoming a man, now a man himself. Oh, good to see you. Where you been? We've missed you these last few months. You look like you've lost weight. What have you been doing? Well, had an interesting 40-day experience in the wilderness. Oh, but good to see you, Jesus. How's, how's mom doing? We sure miss your dad since we don't hear from Joseph or of Joseph ever again after the time that Jesus was with him in the temple as a 12-year-old. Okay, by now, Joseph of Nazareth has probably passed on. But it's such a small town, everyone remembered. Maybe they also remembered some of the rumors that were possibly flying around their shotgun wedding, their quick trip to Bethlehem as a duo and a return quite some time later, as a trio. Huh. I don't know. What's true? I don't know. We are, it's a small town, into everybody else's business. But Jesus was always a good boy. Uh, all rumors to the contrary. He always came to synagogue. Loved the scriptures, kept the Sabbath day holy. Good, good, good oldest son. And his little brothers and sisters, they, they were good kids too, for the most part. But here he is as a 30-year-old man there in the synagogue, and he's about to read something that everyone knows. You start, it's like the hymns. You, know, you start one and they can, and you know exactly the, the hymn we're singing, and we can all sing it by memory. Well, what verse does Jesus turn to? This is Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. A little bit of 3. And we read it in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. But if I can trouble you with another chart... Look at them side by side, and the way Jesus quotes Isaiah is slightly different than what we have in Isaiah itself. Was he paraphrasing some things? Was he 
making some minor adjustments? Or did he have a different version as it's being passed around different synagogues? Perhaps. But notice them side by side. From Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Luke's version. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Close enough. But the Spirit of the Lord God, it's on me? Okay, yeah, this is a messianic passage. Of course, the Spirit of God is going to be upon the Messiah. They don't have any inkling that when Jesus uses the word me, he means it, literally. No, here he's just quoting some other me, some messianic me that hopefully someday will come. Keep reading. Isaiah, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. Or Luke's version that Jesus quotes, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, good tidings and gospel, that's, those are synonyms. Good tidings, that's the good news. That's what gospel means. The good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. That's what the shepherds began to, to spread because the angels came to sing it. These are the good tidings. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And who are we preaching it to? Isaiah says the meek. Luke, Jesus, says the poor. Poor in spirit who come unto me. Meek enough to know the Messiah when he comes among them. You people of Nazareth, will you be? Because if the Lord has anointed me to do these things, how do you say anointed one in Hebrew? Meshiach, Messiah. How do you say anointed one in Greek? Christos, Christ. Everyone is riveted on this. Jesus of Nazareth, the local carpenter slash stonemason slash artisan's boy, Okay, he's a great choice. We love this passage. It's one of our favorites. We know it inside and out. So next line. He hath sent me, this is Isaiah's version, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And as Jesus puts it, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That's how he heals our broken hearts, by binding them to him, to each other. He's come to make that covenant He's come to wrap our injured flesh around him and wrap his arms of mercy around us. So to bind up the brokenhearted in order to heal them. Next phrase, Isaiah, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And in Jesus' words, to preach deliverance to the captives. After all, that's how you proclaim liberty to them. You don't just barge in, break down the prison walls and proclaim you're free. No, you preach deliverance so the captives inside can free themselves i've taught them the truth and the truth shall set them free here's the key unlock the door he adds another phrase to it by the way not just to preach deliverance to the captives but also recovering of sight to the blind you see, their captivity is so often one of unintended blindness or maybe willful blindness on the part of some if he comes to preach deliverance, if the light of the world becomes to shine in that dark prison cell, then of course even the blind will have enough sight to see their way out and come free. Next line of Isaiah's version, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. In Jesus' version, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Interesting. 
not just open the door, but set them at liberty. And his focus, Jesus' focus, is on being bruised more than on being bound. If you've been bound tightly enough, there will be bruises underneath them. Ask, ask uh, Nephi about that. And the soreness after he'd been bound on the ship. I love that Jesus doesn't just see the outside and the ways we've been bound. But he sees how those bonds have affected us. How they've hurt us. How we've been bruised by them. He's coming not just as someone to break the chains, but also someone to soothe the pain that's beneath them. Jesus recognizes our bruises. Since, it's, since he was wounded for our transgressions, and with his stripes we are healed. That was just a few chapters earlier in Isaiah. One more set of phrases from the Isaiah version to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And in Jesus' words, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So it's not just the proclaiming of it, it's the preaching of it. You get a sense of the difference there? To proclaim it, the work's been done. Hey, it's here, the acceptable year of the Lord. But to preach it, this is what it's going to look like. This is how you can help usher it in. I'm calling disciples to bring in the kingdom of God. <laughs> I can't build it all myself. Well, he probably could. He could. But thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, right? Let's do this together. So to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And from then, that's where Luke's version, what Jesus is quoting, stops. Though every Jewish mind in that synagogue would have probably kept quoting Isaiah 61 with words like these. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's one of my favorite passages in all of Isaiah. And Isaiah had a lot of, a lot of masterpieces to share. It must have been one of the Savior's favorites too, because it was speaking of him. This is one of the most profound passages in all of the Savior's patriarchal blessing, which is how I often like to view Isaiah, or even the Old Testament as a whole, at least its messianic messages. Jesus knows it. So for him, all of the me's in there, he's anointed me to do this, those are incredibly personal pronouns, as personal as they can be. But nobody in that room knows that except for the one speaking. Or in this case, the one quoting scripture. He's just reading, that's all. And now that he's done with it, look at verse 20 and 21. And he closed the book, rolled it back up, rolled up the scroll, and gave it again to the minister. It's not my synagogue. I'm just a, vi a visitor here. It's the one I was raised in. But the minister's here. He's in charge. And then Jesus sat down. Now, end of story? No, that's just the beginning of it. Because notice the response. The eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why? He just finished the reading. Doesn't it just go back to the minister now and now the minister can preach? No. Because what they're used to, as Jesus' custom was, and it was, would be the custom among the other people in this Sabbath synagogue, what do you think the, the prophet meant? Let's talk about this. And so much of Jewish history and Jewish tradition is commenting upon Scripture. It's one of the things I love about Judaism. 
Don't just read it. Let's talk about it. Let's sit down and spend as, as many hours as we've got. You remember uh, Tevye on the Fiddler on the Roof and what's his dream of being a wealthy man? Oh, if I could just sit with the learned men and talk about scripture for hours and hours and hours every day. And that would be this, the sweetest thing of all, he says. I've got a little Tevye in me. I know you Unshaken Saints have a lot of Tevye in you too or you wouldn't be here. But what do you think? What do you think it means? And so to have scripture that then becomes commentary and, and Talmud and Midrash and all these things. And what's Jesus going to say? Any thoughts? If this is the same kid that as a 12-year-old blew people's minds at the temple in Jerusalem, the big guns are down there. Here in Nazareth, we got nothing. <laughs> Can any good thing come from here? But he's, he's the little boy wonder. And we love it when he talks about scripture. He pulls things out of the page that never crossed our mind before. And here it is, a messianic message that we all know is pointing to the Christ to come. What's he going to say? And so their eyes are fixed on him. Part of this also is cultural where, again, you stand up to read God's word and then you sit down to discuss it. Because my level of authority is nowhere near God's. So I'm going to lower myself to talk. In Jesus' case, he could have stayed standing the whole time. <laughs> okay? As I read scripture, I'm the one who revealed it to Isaiah in the first place. As I talk about it, I'm still just talking about things I've already said. It's weird that Jesus is quoting himself. Okay? About himself. How's that for all this love, these levels? But I love the way Luke is painting the picture because it's so slow. It's as if, as an author... As a narrator, he is drawing out the drama to increase our sense of anticipation. Because it's not just, and Jesus read it, and then he said. No, look at all these dis distinct phrases. He closed the book. It's going to take a while when you're up all the way in 61. You've got to scroll it back up to the beginning. He hands it to the minister. He sits down. The eyes of all them are fastened on him. Luke is milking this for all it's worth, slowing down the narrative, and then Jesus finally speaks. In fact, it says he only began to speak, suggesting that he couldn't even get through everything he wanted to say before this synagogue is abuzz and whispering behind the back, the back and talk to discussions behind pillars and just, what did he just say? I would have loved, just like, shh, 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 quiet, 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 he's not done speaking. We only got a single sentence. I want to hear more. But what a single sentence. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Those last four words would have blown everyone's mind. Because a passage that they all knew to be messianic prophesying of some future coming of the kingdom. This is Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. These are people just uh, impatiently waiting for the day when this text would be lived out in truth. And what did Jesus, the local artisan, the local stonemason, the local carpenter's boy, what did he just say? 
today is the day. And right here, right now, before your eyes and ears, this passage has been fulfilled. Mic drop and jaw drop right alongside it. Did he just say what I think he said? When he said me, he meant it. What? And so, again, response here. Verse 22, all bear him witness and wondered. The Greek of that, they marveled. In fact, it's not even past tense, it's present. Marveline. It's all happening in real time. They're like, what? They're marveling at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Gracious words? They said, is not this Joseph's son? That's all we've known him to be. I'm a good kid. Yeah, it seemed like a quick study when I hear at the synagogue. Um, probably could have had, a, had his bar mitzvah sooner than others. But it's just a carpenter's kid. It's just a stonemason's son. It's Joseph's boy. This is not Judah Maccabee. This is not... Uh, he's, how on earth is he going to overcome Rome? But there's something about the way he said that that leaves me marveling. Something about these gracious words. And the Greek behind that's amazing. Again, behind the wonder is, mar- is marveling. But behind the words is logos, just in the plural. And this is the logos himself giving them this. This is the word made flesh, giving them these words about the flesh he's occupying. The mantle of the Messiah is upon him. And he's standing right in front of them. And the gracious words, the Greek behind grace there is karitos, as in charity. The pure love of Christ. In fact, the way it's spelled out and and, and kind of worded in the Greek, it doesn't just say the gracious words. It's the, and there's very clear, definite articles, the words of the grace have just been spoken here in our little hole-in-the-wall synagogue, forgotten town, backwaters of Galilee. In a, in a country under some imperial thumb. But these are the words from the word made flesh. This is the grace of God who has grown from grace to grace by always responding <laughs> grace for grace. Really? He's dwelt among us? Even when the glory of the only begotten of the Father, him who is full of grace and truth, the word, the grace, the love of God made manifest. Pinch me. I'm in Nazareth. Can any good thing? This is the greatest thing ever. And he's here. Now, what's interesting is most of us who know the story in Luke 4 know what comes right next, which is, they're up in arms. These are fighting words. And they bring him to, the, to a cliff at the edge of town, ready to shove him off. This is not leap from the pinnacle of the temple. This is us thrust you down headlong over the edge. 
like I said, fighting words. And we assume, here's where we, we, we get into trouble if we assume and don't study the text. We assume that what they're up in arms over is blasphemy. How dare you claim that? We'll see that in Jerusalem later on, okay? Before Abraham was, I am, and they're ready to stone him to death. But they're not ready to throw him off the cliff simply because he said, the Messiah is me. This day it's fulfilled. You're staring at it. Everything Isaiah saw, you're seeing right in front of you. No, with that, they're just in awe. They're dumbstruck, wondering, marveling, word, grace. What? No, that, this is Joseph's boy. Could he really do that? Does he have that potential? This is a strong man used to building things. Could he rebuild the Jewish kingdom? We can only hope. It, that's not what got them up in arms. So what did? Because before long, they will try to kill him. Well, what happens next? This is what we need to understand here. Verse 23 and 24. Jesus then continues speaking. He interrupts their interruption. He said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. In other words, confirm the rumors. Let us see all the stuff we've been hearing about. Let's go from ear to eye. This day have these words been fulfilled in your ears? No, I want to see them fulfilled in my eyes. And I want to see miracles and healings and exorcisms and, and you name it. Because if you're going to cast out Rome, there's the devil for you. You better be able to exorcise. Can we see all that? Now, Jesus knows that about them. I mean, he grew up with them too. He knows them better than they know him. And so that's probably what you're thinking. And he goes on. He said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Ah, so it's not just wondering in awe and marvel. It's also wondering. I mean, there was more to that, that, that statement. Is not this Joseph's son? There's some skepticism. And again, can you blame them? We're even from Nazareth, and yet we'd probably agree with Nathaniel that could anything good come from us? Ah, probably not. But prove it, and then we'll believe. Show us the sign. Leap from the temple. Chase stones to bread. Prove that you're the Son of God, because if you are, then you'll be able to do all these things. If you're really the Messiah, that you just hinted that you were. Prove it, and we'll believe. But that's not how the Lord works. He resisted it when it was the devil doing it. He's going to resist it when it's his own townsfolk. Uh-uh. You want me to do those things as some kind of empirical evidence. That's not how it works. I, I'm not going to heal myself. I'm not going to prove anything to you. Will you simply believe? Because without faith, you'd receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Faith precedes the miracle. You want miracles, then you better have the faith to help produce them. Because faith produces miracles. Miracles don't produce faith. It's just how it works. I can't remember which general authority said it, but I love the quote. It said, if somebody joins the church because of a miracle, it'll be a miracle if they stay. And Jesus wants people to stay. So, no, I'm not going to do it. And now you can see them maybe grumbling a little bit more. They've just been called out. 
No man is prophet in his own country. I get that. Uh, I'm shocked that people out in the world want to listen to me talk about scripture because my kids, for the most part, don't. <laughs> I mean, family home evening can only last so long. And it's like, man, dad, really? Seriously? Do I... You understand? I, I get that. And part of the challenge, I think, for all of us is that there's some truth to that proverb uh, that no man is prophet in his own country because familiarity tends to breed contempt, as they say. And if not contempt, at least complacency. Like, I know that guy. I know that girl. Maybe I know him too well to ever think they can become more than what I know them to be. I think that's one of the challenges of getting older and becoming more closer to the age of the apostles. Or maybe you knew them growing up. And if it's not an apostle, it's more local level. And I went to school with my stake president. Or my bishop and I were buddies when we were kids. Or those kinds of things. Or how could she be the Relief Society president when she was so mean to me when we were young women together? You know, I don't, I'm not speaking personally in any of these areas. Okay? I, but perhaps you're thinking of similar situations. Beware that your knowledge of someone's humanity might eclipse the possibility of their divinity. Okay? Don't think that you know them in the way God knows them. Because you've only seen the mortal side. So allow for some potential, some possibility. Well, that's, we're getting closer to fighting words, but not quite there yet. These are now the fighting words. Verse 25 to 27. Jesus goes on, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. And remember, that's Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when a great famine was throughout all the land. So every Jew in, the, in that synagogue is now thinking, well, duh, of course, we all know the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Okay? But Jesus is taking that story and giving it a little twist that, that only he would, would do and only Luke would record. We don't see this story in Matthew or Mark or John. But Luke, the Gentile writing to Gentiles, loves this story. Because who's the story about? A Gentile, a woman of Zarephath, outside of Israel, non-member. And what does Jesus say? Now, there were lots of widows right here at home, Israelite widows. And Elijah, a fellow Israelite, surely could have multiplied meal and oil for them. But he didn't. What did he do instead? He says, unto none of them, Israelite widows, was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, that's Zarephath, a city of Sidon, as in Tyre and Sidon, north of Israel, on the coast, outside of the kingdom, unto a woman that was a widow. Now, in case you missed what I'm hinting at with that first example, let me give you a second. Let's go from Elijah to Elisha. They were always a powerful pair. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus, the prophet. And Eliseus is just the Greek spelling for Elisha. So lots of lepers in Israel in Elisha's day. But none of them were cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. Remember that story as well? What I love about this is we know those stories really well. Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and Elisha and the Naaman. And, and Naaman, you know, dip in the Jordan River seven times and come out clean. But what Jesus is drawing attention to, and what Luke just lit up Luke's eyes, is the fact that Jesus is calling attention to the fact that the recipient of God's miracles 
were non-members instead of members. <laughs> Gentiles instead of Jews. Yeah, I, I can see why Matthew wouldn't touch his story with a 10-foot pole, but, Le- but Luke grabs a hold of it and emblazons it there in chapter 4. Oh, you Gentiles, throughout the Mediterranean world, one greater than Elijah is coming to multiply your meal and oil. One greater than Elisha is coming to heal you because he's aware of every bruise. He who just went down to the Jordan River is coming up with with water filled to the brim, ready to pour out blessings as far as the eye can see. And far is what my eye is seeing, non-Israelites. If Jesus had come to the synagogue in Salt Lake City, we might call that the conference center, if he was speaking in general conference and pointed out something similar, like, you know, there were lots of people in, among the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that needed a certain blessing, and yet that blessing I gave to a Methodist over there or a Catholic over there. I bless Jews left and right, and Muslims are some of my favorite people. In fact, I believe in atheists, even though atheists don't believe in me. And I'll even grant them happiness and joy every chance that I, I'm able. How would we react if in a conference talk it was all the quote-unquote non-members that were being extolled and admired instead of us? Because that's exactly what Jesus just did. And those are the fighting words. It's because of that that the Jews are now up in arms. And so in verse 28 and 29, all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill where on their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. It was not blasphemy that scandalized them. It was Christ's openness that outraged them. You ever heard the word ethnocentricity? Centricity, centric, center, ethno, oh, our ethnicity our group, our people, and we're centered on them. Yeah, it's us, and only us. Ever heard of the word xenophobia? Phobia, fear. Xeno as is is foreign, outside. And xenophobia is fear of outsiders. Are we guilty of that? Do we still live by an us versus them mentality? Are we still trying to hunker down behind the walls of Zion instead of opening the doors and building bridges across the moats that we used to dig? The Lord is inviting us to reach out because he's been reaching out all along. And the thought of us being up in arms, angered at openness himself because of that openness, Elder Ballard gave a talk years ago called The Doctrine of Inclusion. And that one's worth rereading. To open the arms and bring others in. And not just into the kingdom of God, as in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but into the kingdom of God's love by offering offering them our love as well. 
I don't <laughs> re -re go reread the Old Testament. I know Naaman left with a great perspective on Israelites, but he didn't. He, he did go back to Syria, right? He stayed Syrian. The widow of Zarephath now loved the God of Israel, but she's still a Sidonian, right? Or are we only waiting? You're, I'll be nice to you as a project, and if you end up joining the church, then yeah, we can be fast friends. But if not, then oh, what little friendship I offered was wasted on you. It's, friendship's never wasted. Words of grace, true charity from the Logos himself, that's never wasted. And so be open. Jesus was, and they wanted to close the door on him and his life. But, verse 30, fascinating. In the midst of all of this turmoil, and this is attempted murder about to take place right before your eyes. People shouting and yelling and pushing and jostling and shoving him towards the brow of the hill. And then, Luke 4, verse 30. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. That's it. Went his way? What on earth did, does that mean? How did you get out? Jesus is the master of the situation, as always. It's actually hilarious. I was teaching this just last semester at BYU. And we happened to get to Luke 4 the day after BYU lost to Arkansas. And we made Arkansas's quarterback look like the slipperiest man on earth because he got away from every possible sack. And there in classes, we were studying this, and we saw that. He just passing through the midst, went his way, and I couldn't help myself. All of a sudden, I just remembered replays I'd seen from, from the, week before, the weekend before, and I said, kind of like Arkansas's quarterback, just sort of pass away between all the defensive linemen. And the whole class just groaned, like, oh, and I, uh, too, too soon, too soon. Yeah, that, that was too soon. I don't know if there were head fakes and swim moves or what, but Jesus... It's not my time. So I'll be seeing you, neighbors. At least I hope I will be. And he left. And they were powerless to do anything about it. That's amazing. It's like Jesus cleansing the temple. He just did it, and nobody could stop. It's like Abinadi. I haven't finished my message. My time has not yet come, so you can't do a thing against me. And Jesus knew his time hadn't come yet either. But what time was it? It was time to preach. It's go time. Uh, we'll see Messianic secret in Mark. We see the boldness of John with Jesus declaring all those I am statements. But here in Luke, early on, Luke 4, he's, telling, he's starting there at home and disabusing his neighbors of what they thought of him. I'm so much more. And now it's time to tell the rest who I am and begin my public ministry. Back in the Matthew 4 version, right on the heels of the temptations, we see this, verse 13 through 16, leaving Nazareth, that's why I inserted the Luke account right there. We, don't, we didn't get anything from Matthew of what happened in Nazareth, what he, but Jesus was there. Now, leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. It's going to be kind of headquarters for a while, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtali. And why are you getting so specific about geography? Well, if you're a Jew writing to Jews, as Matthew was, then they're going to know their geography. In fact, they're going to know the theology behind some geography, and this is an example of it. The borders of Zebulon and Naphtali, that's the tribal inheritances of the tribes of, of Zebulon and Naphtali. 
And then a scripture pops into Matthew's mind, as scriptures always seem to do, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's the geographic verse. And now the theological verse, or the messianic verse. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. So while Luke was quoting, or was letting Jesus quote Isaiah 61, Matthew here has a different passage of Isaiah in mind. And just because Jesus is there in Nazareth and Capernaum, I love that Matthew knows his Old Testament well enough to go, ooh, I can even turn that into evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. By taking this verse that I know about location and people up north around the Sea of Galilee, they're the ones upon whom the light will shine. Well, now it's shining. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, remember we're in Matthew here. And though we just took that long trip to Nazareth with Luke's help and saw Jesus reading scripture and proclaiming his Messiahship, uh, declaring member, non-member and Zarephath and, and Syria and all of this, amazing discourse there in the synagogue of Nazareth. But since we didn't get any of that in Matthew, and since all we've seen so far of Jesus speaking, I mean, confine yourself to Matthew and see what Matthew just did. It's, it's really fascinating. Matthew 1, genealogy. Uh, Matthew 2, wise men come. Jesus is still too little to say anything. Uh, the 12 years old, we don't get that story in Matthew, so we're not aware of it. Next thing we get is the baptism, and we do hear Jesus finally speak, first time. He speaks to John, but it's just a personal conversation. Suffer it to be so now, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. He had, there's no public ministry there. Those words weren't meant for all ears. There's Matthew 3. Matthew 4, then, we hear Jesus, but again, private conversation between him and the devil. He still hasn't said a thing publicly in Matthew until now. In Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus began to preach. And what's the first word out of his mouth? Repent. Don't lose sight of that significance. Again, Luke would have different things to say. But for Matthew, the first thing Jesus wants to say to the world is repent. I came for such a time as this. I came to cleanse you from that. In fact, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's in my hands. And my hands are extended to you. So come and see. Come and follow. Come and build with me. Build the kingdom. Now, it's actually interesting. Again, stick with Matthew. And in Matthew 4, Jesus' first words of public ministry. Then go back to Matthew 3, see John the Baptist's first words of public ministry. And what are they? Matthew 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, what? Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what was Jesus' first words, public ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Talk about great mission companions. <laughs> this was a match made in heaven, literally. 
With that, jump over to the Mark version, just two quick verses. Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, so here's the first public words from Jesus in Mark's version, the time is fulfilled. So what you've been waiting all this time for, you've waited long enough. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. We saw that in Matthew's version from Jesus and from John. Repent ye and believe the gospel. It's all coming together. Believe the gospel. There's your faith. Repent of your sins. The kingdom has come. Help me build it. Then back to Matthew, chapter 4, verse 18 to 20. What is Jesus going to do next? He's declared his Messiahship at the, at the synagogue in Nazareth. He's there in Capernaum. He's beginning to preach. The kingdom has come. Chapter 4 of Matthew, 18 through 20. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishers. Of course, that's what they're going to be doing. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, that's not all he said. In the JST of that, I am he of whom it is written by the prophets. So take that, Mr. If thou be the son of God, Lucifer. <laughs> I'm him. I am he who was written by the prophets. So follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you know your scriptures at all, Simon and Andrew, I'm their fulfillment. Please come. Now back in John chapter 1, we saw Jesus calling disciples as it begins. Follow me, right? Come and see. Where do you live? Just come and check it out. Is this the same event? It seems like it. Different order of things. Uh, different uh, set of circumstances surrounding it. But here's Jesus calling Peter and Andrew to start. And how do they respond? And they straightway, Mark would have used the word immediately, but it's the same concept. They straightway left their nets and followed him. In fact, Mark's version is almost identical, but it says straightway they forsook their nets and followed him, which is a stronger verb. It's not like just that they left it like, oh, where were those nets again? I, I'm sorry, I left them behind. It's no, I'm abandoning them. I'm forsaking them because I finally realized what they were for. They were simply, my profession was preparation. And all that fishing I did was just to help me learn what it means to be a fisher of men. Christ's profession as a builder, I'm going to build the kingdom of God. But to do it, I'm going to have to gather the multitudes. And who's the best at gathering fish of every sort? Oh, fishermen are. We're going to need some nets here. So brethren, leave the ones you're used to, but use the same skill set, would you? And come and become fishers of men. I love the fact that Elder Uchtdorf has taught us so much about the gospel through aviation because he has consecrated his profession and turned profession into preparation and teaches the gospel through things that he knows so well. Elder Ballard had a, was a, had a car dealership. Uh, he was and is an incredible salesman. And I don't know of anybody who's talked about missionary work more than he. He's not selling the gospel, but he is teaching us how to help people understand just what an incredible vehicle towards salvation the gospel of Jesus Christ is. To understand Elder Bednar, organizational behavior, PhD, 
think that might help in the Quorum of the Twelve. Or Elder Irene, President Irene, his PhD was studying how large organizations make complex decisions. You think that's come in handy in the last 40 years of church leadership? Ah, think about it. Even, well, not even. Think about heart surgery and Elder Renland as well as President Nelson are healers of hearts far beyond what they did physically in their profession. And you could say the similar things for every one of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. Business acumen or legal expertise. Just how do we lead the kingdom of God? The Lord says, take everything you've learned already and consecrate it. Now, again, the irony here, though, is I'm glad you're a master of using nets because we're going to be fishing for men and women and bringing in netfuls of disciples of Christ. So that's the good side of your net. But there's a bad side, too, because nets don't just catch fish. They sometimes catch fishermen. And Simon and Andrew, we'll see the same in a moment with James and John, are you caught up in your nets? Because I found that whatever you own ends up owning you in a way. And I just worry that you're the one entangled amidst the fishing line. Can you untangle yourself and come and follow me? Or do you have too much there holding you back? At some point in our lives, the Lord calls all of us to leave something behind. Because coming unto him also means leaving behind whatever we were holding on to previously. And I love that they did it straightway. Didn't have to think hard about it. They just knew. And I'm going to act on it immediately. And they do. They leave them. They forsake them. Because there's better things ahead. Verse 21 and 22, we see two more come. Going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, family affair, mending their nets. So the nets mattered to them as well. Sometimes they're washing them. Here they are mending them. This is my livelihood. I have to be able to catch fish, and my nets better be in good working order to do it. Oh, I'd love to see that in you. You value, you take seriously you're careful about what you're doing. I could use some of those skill sets and attributes among my followers. But will you follow? They're mending their nets. He called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. In Mark's account, it even adds, they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Hmm. So they're not just leaving nets, they're leaving a ship, they're leaving hired servants. This sounds like a successful business. The fact that they can afford their own ship and afford to have other servants that they hire and pay for employment. Huh. They've got a lot to leave. And they leave it. That's amazing to me. Now, so far, Matthew and Mark agree. Luke agrees as well, but then adds so much more insight here. The Luke account of the calling of Peter and James and John and Andrew is my favorite of the four. Okay? And notice what you see here. Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, 
Again, the rumors have flown. People are, the, the multitudes are assembling. They want to know, they want, they're hanging on every word. They press upon him to hear the word of God. A far cry from the pressing upon him to throw him off the cliff at Nazareth. Things are better than they were a little while ago. Now, Jesus is standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is just another way of saying the Sea of Galilee. He saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets, which suggests that they're done for the day. Remember, James and John are mending them here. There's two ships. Well, maybe one is Peter and Andrews, the other is James and John. Is it all part of Zebedee's business? Are there other hired servants? Are they, what, they're, but they're washing the nets, which again suggests we're done. We'll see in a moment what an unsuccessful night of fishing it was. And so we're calling it quits, okay? Now, Jesus entered into one of the ships. <laughs> they're not even in. It's kind of weird that like, he just steps in there. The fishermen are gone out of them. They're washing the nets. Jesus thought, oh, this looks like an, an unoccupied vessel. So he enters into one of the ships, which was Simon's. And he prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. So picture this scene unfold before you. He gets into this empty boat. He looks around. Who's it? You wonder if Peter's like, well, what are you doing in my boat? Oh, it's yours. Good. I figured getting into it, I'd be able to spot the owner. <laughs> okay. Would you come and help? I am not really adept with all these oars and things. Uh, I build stuff. But since you catch stuff, will you come? I could use some help. You see, I'm so packed in by the people there on the shore that far enough out, nobody can hear me, okay? But if you'll let me stand in your boat and you'll just launch out a little bit from the shore, then I have some safe distance. But also the Sea of Galilee then becomes this natural amphitheater. And as the hills rise away from the lake, the sound waves from my voice can just bounce off the surface of the water and then begin to ascend the hills. And people far further and wider can hear the, the gracious words that are coming from the word of grace himself. Would you, could you help me out with that, Simon? Your name means here, right? Are you hearing me? I'd like them to hear me too. I want all kinds of Simons out here. A little help? Fine. I'm happy to do it. There's nothing else to do all day. I don't have any fish to gut because we didn't catch anything. So Fine. I actually remember as a student in Israel myself, as I was there on the Sea of Galilee, loved that area. It's so evocative of what took place 2,000 years ago. But I remember once I was on the shore, and I think I was reading something, just maybe I was sleeping, I can't remember, I was just sitting on the, on the shore, and I heard a conversation unfold that sounded like two of my friends from the Jerusalem Center that were like, did you pull up a, a beach towel right next to me? Because it sounded that close. And I either put down my book or I rolled over and you know, sat up. I can't remember which. But I looked to see, what, because they weren't right next to me. And I looked down the shore, to the shoreline and then off into the lake. They were maybe waist deep, that far out. And it was a guy and a girl standing right next to each other, facing each other, having a conversation, which therefore would have been normal voice. And it sounded like I was right next to them. And all, ever since, I can see why Jesus would try to take advantage of the natural acoustics of the area. Just go out there and I don't have to yell. I can teach. And so he teaches. 
Keep going, Luke 5, verse 4 and 5. Now, when he had left speaking, he's done now, he's finished his sermon, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep. Let's go a little deeper water and let down your nets for a draft. I mean, you're going to get a catch like you've never seen before. Now, Simon, who always seems to say what's on his mind and bless him and curse him for that all at the same time. You got to love him, though. Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night. And as many a fisherman will tell you, that's the better time to fish. We toiled all night and have taken nothing. By the way, we're the professionals here. We fish for a living. <laughs> if we need some advice on construction, we're going to ask you. But please don't give me advice on fishing. I've, this is what I've been doing since I was a little boy. Same with Zebedee's boys. It's Zebedee's business. This is multi-generational fishermen. And we know how it's done. When I've heard my Uncle Mike, Mike Wilcox teach this story, I love the way he describes the next word, because the word is nevertheless. And the way Mike describes it is, I wonder how much time passed between Peter making, or Simon making the excuse, like, ah, there's nothing's biting today. It's like, I've got, we had great bait, but the fish weren't hungry, okay? So no temptation last night for them, right? So be it. We'll live to fish another day, but I'm done. And the way Mike describes it is, you picture Jesus just looking at him, unimpressed with the, the fisherman's logic, just waiting for it to dawn on Simon who it is that's speaking to him. Because then, sure enough, what does Simon say? Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. I love Mike's depiction of that. Well, he does. He lets down the net. And then next verses, 6 and 7. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. <laughs> All that mending you were doing, well, it wasn't strong enough. The nets are bulging to the point of breaking. And so they beckon unto their partners, which were in the other ship. Here's where James and John come in. That they should come and help them. And they came and they filled both the ships so that they began to sink. You want to talk about drama? This is manna from heaven all over again. This is quails up to the waist and coming out their nostrils, like we saw in the Old Testament. This is Elijah multiplying meal and oil to a non-member. Uh, this is Elisha telling another woman to gather every pot in the neighborhood and keep pouring out the oil because it's never running dry. All these Old Testament miracles, who are you? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, <laughs> everyone is soon to find out. Luke 5, verse 8 through 10. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And which one is he? Is he more Simon? Is he more Peter? In the John version, we see that nickname given him when he first meets. Well, there's a lot of transition to do. There's still a lot of Simon so far. But he's moving in the direction of Peter. But now, Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, all that were with him, at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. Everyone is shocked. This is the Sea of Galilee equivalent of what just took place at the synagogue in Nazareth. As people marvel not just over gracious words, but over gracious acts. 
they just won the lottery. And what is Jesus saying to them? Come be fishers of men. And you'll fill boatfuls of willing disciples who simply want to come unto me. Will you come unto me to help? Peter's not ready for that. I should say Simon's not ready for that. Peter would do it. But Simon, what's his initial response? That's why I love this version even more than John's version, because you see the soul of this humble fisherman. There's, I have no business coming unto you. Because I'm a sinful man. This is Moses saying, I'm slow of speech and I can't do this. This is Enoch saying, I'm just a lad and all the people hate me. This is Gideon, I can't do this. This is Isaiah saying, I'm a man of unclean lips, surrounded by a people with unclean lips. But what does the cherubim do? I can take an, a coal off the altar and purge you of that sin. Peter, I'm not calling you because you are sinless. I know you're a sinful man. But how you see yourself, which is accurate to a degree, is only your Simon side. How would you like to live into your Peter potential? Then come. I think it's tragic that so often we see our present self and instead of becoming our future version, we want to stick with where we are and eliminate the person that's calling us to climb. We've talked about this a lot of times. Uh, the gap, we call it the guilt gap between what we believe and how we behave or where I ought to be and where I am. This is the idea up top, this is the real down below, and this gap is filled with my own guilt, and I can never overcome it, and so please just leave. And what is that, what is that doing? It's eliminating the top line. And now there's no gap. I'm not falling short of a standard because I've eliminated the standard. See how easy that was? That's what the no, King Noah did and his wicked priests, that's what Korhor is trying to do, it's what Satan was trying to do in pre-mortality. Sadly, Simon is doing a similar thing. Will you please depart from me because I'm a sinful man and... I probably always will be. And rather being haunted by my own worthiness, eliminate the standard and then I don't feel a difference. Can I just kind of patch over my troubled conscience? And that's not the way of the Lord. I'm aware of your sinfulness, Simon. It's okay. I came down to lift you up. I descended to your boat after all. And it's not just the wood that's keeping it afloat. I will carry you up above the waters and waves of the world. Just wait. I'll do it literally in a, in a, in a little while. But come. Don't remove that high standard. And notice, I'm not rejecting you just because you're down below. Because what does Jesus do with the guilt gap? He calls it the grace gap and fills it with his gracious words of come unto me. And he keeps lifting us. We float higher and higher on that high tide <laughs> that Jesus brings in. In fact, Jesus says to him, verses 10 and 11, he says to Simon, and it's Simon <laughs> that has protested, not Peter, fear not. Don't fear your inadequacies. Don't fear your... Don't even fear your unworthiness. Don't fear my judgment, because I'm not judging you harshly. Just come. I'll take care of the rest. Fear not. 
from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And yes, it will be a similar haul. No nets big enough to contain them. You'll just have to escape your own net to come unto me. And he did. When they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now what blows me away at, at this forsaking of the nets was its timing. Because what kind of nets were Peter and Andrew and James and John leaving behind? Full ones. Nets bulging and breaking. This fishing business just won the lottery. And I could picture them saying to Jesus, I wish you would have invited me to leave my nets like an hour ago because they were empty then. I was so sick of those stupid nets. Here I am washing them or mending them for no reason because they got dirty with a night of work that they didn't do a thing. And having to clean up shop and, and put all, everything away, it's such a pain. And usually at least it's worth it because they served their purpose the night before, but not this night. Oh, I would have dropped those nets in a, at an instant, in a heartbeat. But what? Less for me to mend or wash. Good riddance to you. Dad, good luck with your business. It's not didn't do us any good last night. Glad you have other hired servants. You're going to have anything to pay them with? Now we're following Jesus. But no. What's amazing about this inconvenient Messiah, as he's been called, is he sometimes times his invitations to be as inconvenient as possible. Would you give me 18 to 24 months of your life to serve a mission? Oh, sure. How does like age 80 and 81 sound? I'll lengthen my shuffle and, and do my best. Now, what's amazing is what, by the time you get to 80, that's not convenient at all. It's hard. <laughs> Senior missionaries, what are you doing? It's, that's not a more convenient time. It only seems convenient from the perspective of an 18-year-old. I'll have nothing else to do when I'm that old. Whatever. But for an 18-year-old, I got everything to do right now. I got all kinds of stuff going on. I'll give you time, but not this time, please. And the Lord's like, no, this time. Leave your nets when they're full. Not just in the convenience of their emptiness. Because if you really think about it, Simon, why are they full now? Who filled them for you? I'm not asking you to sacrifice anything that I didn't give you to begin with. Right? And think about that in terms of any call to serve that we receive. And all that we're doing in our so-called sacrifices is returning things to the Lord that loaned them to us in the first place. In fact, in some ways, Peter, Simon, excuse me, why do you think I filled the nets? So you'd have something to give. Now, there might be a temporal aspect here. Your father Zebedee is, learn is losing four of his best employees. And yes, he's got hired servants, but he's going to have to hire some more. And thankfully, he's winning the lottery. And he can sell all this. Or maybe this is what's going to allow you to begin the ministry yourself. Because you're leaving behind a lot more than nets. You're leaving boats and family and responsibilities and so on. But come. But again, on a more personal level, on a more symbolic level, 
I'm giving you something to give back to me. Otherwise, what do you give the God that has everything? It reminds me of when your children are small and they want to give you a gift because it's Father's Day or it's Mother's Day or it's Christmas or it's your birthday and they have nothing. And sometimes they'll come and say, Dad, can I have $10? I'm like, why? Well, because it's Father's Day and I, I want to get you something. And I laugh inside going, do you not understand the irony of what you're just saying? You want me to buy something for myself. It's just going to pass through you on the way. Oh, what the heck? I won't tell you that. And fear, in fact, here's a 20. Get me something good. <laughs> oh, do you understand? I love that the Lord sees our, not just our sinfulness, that, that's Peter's protest, but he sees our nothingness. And we have nothing to give unless he gives us something first. And then we can give it back. And we can forsake it. We can so-called sacrifice it. Even though it came from him from the start and he's going to open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing we can't even receive. He's never in our debt. We're always in his. So leave the nets in whatever condition they're in. Empty, full, dirty, clean, mended, broken. Don't let them entangle you. Come unto me. And they do. With that, go back to Matthew 4. And Jesus continues his teaching, his ministry in Galilee. The followers are coming. The disciples are gathering to this gathering of water. Matthew 4, verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. JST adds one phrase, which believed on his name. Ah, Okay, it's not just, physician, heal thyself. It's not just prove yourself and do these miracles. No, it's among those who already believe on his name. Faith is preceding these miracles, as it should. But notice the verbs. What is Jesus doing as he travels around Galilee? He is teaching, he is preaching, and he is healing. And he's healing all manner of sickness, all manner of disease. There's nothing beyond his redeeming reach. But what forms does that redemption come in? Teaching, preaching, healing. Elder Holland, who was a teacher and preacher and healer himself, what was his profession that he could consecrate to the Lord? He was a teacher. He was a religious educator. And he's been doing that ever since, just with larger and larger classrooms. But he came to speak to us, professional religious educators, as a former professional religious educator himself. And he gave us a talk on, on, our, on what we were called to do. And guess what he called it? Teaching, preaching, healing. Straight out of Matthew chapter 4. And the way Elder Holland described it, he said, those verbs are all synonyms as far as the gospel is concerned. Because every time you teach and preach, what are you doing? You're healing bruised and bound souls and vice versa every time you're healing aren't there lessons there to teach and preach as you give god the glory uh, what what a, what verbs we can we can live into and to be a part of now from there jump to the luke version what does he say here he's again preaching there teaching there healing there throughout galilee luke 4 31 to 32 he came down to capernaum a city of galilee and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, 
for his word was with power. Think of that. Astonished at doctrine. It's the power of his words, not just his acts. You'd think that the astonishment would come at his acts, but no, it's his words first, because faith precedes the miracle. And without the faith, there's not going to be the miracle. I'm not going to show you. I'm not showing off. I'm not leaping from the temple, so please don't throw me from the cliff. No. But when people had the ears to hear, the real Simons out there, Simon, to hear, if they opened their, hear, their ears and their hearts, they were healed. And it was the doctrine that healed them. More physical miracles that could then follow in, the, in, the, in its wake. I, oh, I can heal those things too. But the doctrine amazed them. And the way he puts it, it was word with power. Everyone else has words. They quote scripture too. But the power behind it, remember Isaiah's complaint, they draw near me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrine, the commandments of men, but they deny the power thereof. Who's this guy? There's power in his preaching. It's not weak word. It's capital W, word of God. This is amazing. The way uh, Mark explains this might even be more powerful. Mark 1.22, they were astonished at his doctrine, so far so same, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Now think of the comparison there to the scribes. But also compare it to what he just what we saw in Luke. Luke, it's about Christ's power. Mark, it's about Christ's authority. And for a Gentile audience, they probably don't care much about authority, but power? This guy speaks with power. Whereas if Mark, Matthew would like this too, is speaking more to Jews who, know, who feel the importance of authority, it's not scribal authority. Because scribes don't have any authority. They know they don't. And so all they do is hold to the authority of Scripture. Sound like Protestantism in our day? There is no priesthood authority here. So what we hold to is the authority of Scripture, and we study it. I, I, I'm so impressed with Protestantism's love of Scripture and understanding of Scripture. They take its authority seriously, and blessed be, should they be for that. Okay? I'm not trying to diminish what they're doing. But there's a difference here between scribal religion and authoritative religion, which authoritative would mean prophets, apostles, prophecy, revelation. Now that's astonishing doctrine. And what's amazing about these, these Jewish hearers are, there's so much behind this. It's as if they're going, how come this guy doesn't quote scripture all the time? I mean, yes, he did in the synagogue in Nazareth, but he doesn't lay everything down in chapter and verse. He just talks. We'll see this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, when he takes the law, quotes it, and then raises it. It's crazy that anyone would have the guts to do that from a Jewish background. It's like, no, no, no. A Bible, a Bible, we only have a Bible. That's all we need. Or it's Scripture. You show me chapter and verse, and that's all there is. Again, if it's the end of the prophets, so no wonder we can't have more prophecy. There's no more books after Malachi. No one has power. No one has authority. So we're left with the power and authority of Scripture. And so no wonder the scribes come onto the scene who are experts in the Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and they'll chapter and verse you to death. 
and they'll proof text and say, it has to be here. No, but it says here this, and then what about this? And it's all in the scriptures. Have you ever taught someone who really knows the scriptures and wants to combat everything you ever say to them with a scripture from the Bible? We call that a Bible bash. And have you ever been a part of one as they're bashing you left and right? with What the Bible says here? Oh, but this says it. And you can't, you can't add to the scripture because what Revelation says. And you can't do this because over here and that... Eternal marriage? No, because of Matthew 22. And it's, it's, you hear it all the time. Particularly from, and I love them for it, Protestants who know their Bible. I do a lot of interfaith work. And it's always scripture-based. And in fact, in one of those interfaith dialogues, I was blown away by what the Spirit showed me in a conversation over scripture. It was a group of evangelical students and a group of Latter-day Saints students meeting together for an interfaith dialogue. I've done a ton of those and they're amazing. Uh, I love the faith and the testimony and the goodness on both sides of each conversation. And I try to stay out of them to not monopolize conversations between young adults. I go talk to the pastors that brought them. It's fun. Amazing people, men and women of God, everyone. And I remember one of those occasions where an LDS student raised her hand and said, Brother Halverson, can you come here, please? I'm, I, I don't know what scripture to share with my friend to prove that our doctrine is true. I'm like, oh, is that what you guys are doing? Okay. Um, and they brought up something about eternal marriage. And they're like, where is that? Because Matthew 22 is really clear about blah, blah, blah. And we were talking. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I know that verse. And I try to explain some things. I'm like, well, there is the verse in 1 Corinthians 11 about... Neither is the man without the woman, nor the woman without the man in the Lord. We see that in Adam and Eve, and they were married in the Garden of Eden before death came into the world. So it would never have been till death do you part, because that wasn't part of their vocabulary. So it was assumed to be eternal marriage from then. And again, that verse in 1 Corinthians is a great one of just in the Lord, husband, male and female, husband and wife are supposed to be together. And I wasn't trying to prove anything, just like there were some verses that, that inform our understanding. But the way that the evangelical student responded was eye-opening. Because he looked at that verse in 1 Corinthians 11 and said, but, 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 not, but in context of what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthian saints, he's not establishing the doctrine of eternal marriage. So if you get that doctrine from that verse, and the way he said that, I had to interrupt him, because he's like, you get that doctrine from that verse. I said to him, oh, wait, wait, wait stop, pause for just a minute. I'm sorry if I have led you to believe that that's the verse that, from which we got that doctrine. That's not the case. We got that doctrine in a revelation from the Lord to Joseph Smith. And if you really want to study it, 1 Corinthians 11 isn't your place. Doctrine and Covenants 131 and 132 are. Just like if you want to talk about baptisms for the dead, Joseph didn't create that doctrine out of 1 Corinthians 15.29. He learned the doctrine through revelation, and we find it in D&C 127 and 128. Joseph didn't invent the degrees of glory because he was studying 1 Corinthians 15, 40 to 42. No, he received it in vision alongside Sidney Rigdon, and we study that in Doctrine and Covenants section 76. So I, I wanted to share a few scriptures from the Bible that suggest it, because that's the, the authority you turn to. 
but that's but please don't misunderstand me in thinking that that's where we get the doctrine. And then all of a sudden something clicked. And the verse of scripture that popped into my mind was this one from Mark chapter 1 verse 22. And I said to him as humbly as I could, but it came out forcefully as well. I said there are those that teach only out of scripture because that's all they have. And what a blessing we have it. But those are scribal religions because they have what has been scribed, what has been inscribed, written down on the page, and that's all we've got, what's ever within the covers of the Bible. That's not us. Because we believe that God has restored prophets and apostles to the earth, and where there are prophets and apostles, there is revelation, and where there is revelation, there is ongoing understanding and a growth of the canon of Scripture. There's no back cover. Tear it off. And please don't take this the wrong way. Because I love you. And I love your love of the scriptures. I love how well you know the Bible. We tend to share Bible verses with you as you share Bible verses with us. Because that's common ground. But that's not our only ground. Because prophets and apostles speak as ones having authority. And not as the scribes. We go Bible to Bible with you because yours is a scribal religion. And I mean that with all admiration and respect. Ours is partly scribal too. I'm grateful for all that's written in scripture. But ours is also revelatory and prophetic and authoritative as far as prophets and apostles with authority from God. I, I don't mean to offend you in any of this. Forgive me for my boldness. But that's where we're coming from. And that's where Jesus came from. We talked about this briefly last year when we studied the book of Daniel. And when Nebuchadnezzar asked his wise men, reveal the dream and then I'll trust your interpretation. Because anybody can interpret, but only inspired people can reveal. So I'll trust your level of authority for interpretation if you can show your level of authority with revelation. And again, when it comes to anyone can interpret scripture, but it better be on the same level of authority as those who can reveal it in the first place. And for that, prophets and apostles are required, not simply scribes. I hope that makes sense. I hope that doesn't offend. And if you ever share that with someone who is a Bible-believing, scribal religious, uh, re religion, don't use it as a club. It's not meant to be that. I think in humility, we can help people understand where we're coming from and where we receive our doctrine. And if we do it with the right spirit, then they will be astonished as well, the way these people were. Jesus just had a different way of teaching. And I, for one, am thrilled to watch him teach us for the next several months as we follow him through the Gospels. A few last things, and then we'll tie things up with a ribbon for this week. Luke chapter 4, verse 33 and 34. In the synagogue, there was a man. Jesus is teaching there. Every synagogue he can enter all around the Sea of Galilee. But in this particular synagogue, there's a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? 
I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now, we'll talk more about exorcism and demoniac possession when we meet Legion in a later lesson. But we're seeing some hints of that. Uh, he was not alone in this, in this sad state. But notice what they knew. They know the Lord's doctrine. They just don't want to believe it. Uh, they, or don't want to act on it, don't want to accept it. There's no faith, even though there's perfect knowledge. They, I know thee who thou art. You're the Holy One of God. No introduction needed. You don't even have to open the Isaiah scroll for us to recognize you. You're the same one that cast us out of premortality. And we'll never get over that one. It's just interesting that, I mean, you Spanish speakers, the difference between saber and conocer, you can saber adios, you can know him in terms of, oh yeah, he's the Holy One of God, I know who he is, but please leave me alone. I'm an unclean devil and want to stay that way. Then again, there's conocerle a Dios, to conocer, to be familiar with, to be, have an intimate relationship or connection to. And it's only that kind of knowledge of God that translates into behavior like his. That's what we're, that's what we're looking for. Well, in this case, verse 35 and 30 to 37, Jesus rebuked him, the devil, that is, not the, not the man that was possessed of it, and said, hold thy peace and come out of him. Amazing, he can see the difference, recognize the difference, address one and not the other. You, devil, come out of him. This person who's suffering, Jesus knows our bruises. He separates us from our sins. No, Simon, you're not a sinful man. You're just a man who's committed some sins, and we can get you away from that. <laughs> Keep rowing. Let's go out into the deep, and we'll, throw the, we'll bring in the fish, and we'll throw out the sins. How's that sound? Okay. I can cleanse you. I can heal you. I don't define you by your demons. So come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, the Mark version says the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice. Either way, he just wants to get in one last lick. But he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? In the Mark version, they say, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? Back to Luke. For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. Wow. Again, this is power. This is authority. It's in his words, not just in his deeds. It's in his doctrine. What kind of doctrine is this? That, they can, that he can command the devils. That's doctrine? Huh. There's something about his words, this word made flesh. There's something about his power and authority, the way he teaches, the way he preaches, the way he heals. Yeah, it's all the same thing. Now, the next story in the Luke account is healing Peter's mother-in-law. And we're going to see that. It's in, in Mark as well. It's also in Matthew. We're going to teach that story when we get to the Matthew account. But I do have to point out something that blew me away as I was really wrestling. This, this was hard. Trying to make sense of the order here. Because in the Mark account and the Matthew account, Jesus meets Simon Peter first, and then later goes to his home and helps or heals his mother-in-law. And that would make sense. I, I actually trust the chronology of, of Mark best on that one. 
Matthew pushes it back further into the story. We don't get that story until we get to Matthew 8 and 9. Uh, but at least it's after having already met Simon. Okay? In the Luke account, it's strange because the first time, unless I'm missing something, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is correct. The first time you meet Simon in the Luke account, it's when Jesus is healing his mother-in-law. And he doesn't call Simon to be a fisher of men until the next chapter, which is weird. But then again, it might be Lucan. Because if Matthew and Mark are sticking with strict chronology, or closer to the strict chronology, and it starts with, you meet the man, and then from the man, you go help the woman. Yeah, that's kind of a Jewish approach. It's a patriarchal society. That's a, that's a Mark version. That's a Matthew version. But I just wonder, is Luke doing Luke and things? And just switching the chronology. The stories are all accurate. They, they, these things happen. But I'm just going to reverse the order. Because I want Jesus reaching out to a woman first. In fact, look, reaching out to a mother-in-law. Now, I can't tell mother-in-law jokes because mine's amazing and I love her. But imagine what is being suggested here. Jesus' first contact is with a woman who is suffering. Someone lowly, probably a widow by now. We don't know the details, but no father-in-law is ever mentioned. And for Jesus to see her in need and meet those needs. And maybe meet Simon in the process. And then later on the Sea of Galilee, getting in a boat that he probably knew was Simon's. But hey, Simon, remember me? How's your mother-in-law doing? Still okay? Send her my love, would you? In fact, could you do me a favor, though, since I've already done your family one? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Can you launch out into a little bit and let me preach from your boat? It'll be worth your while. Trust me. I don't, again, I don't know, and we don't really need to know, all the details of a strict chronological <laughs> timeline. Because it's theology we're after more than chronology. But I do love the suggestion that Luke seems to be making of who God starts with. Let's start with the lowly. Let's start with the outsider and then work our way in. Let's meet the mother-in-law. And then we'll go find Simon. Pretty amazing. The next story in Luke is, starts in verse 40 and 41. More healing, more teaching, but notice this one. Now when the sun was setting... And if you rewind a little bit, back in verse 31, it was the Sabbath day this took place on. So the sun is setting on a Sabbath. And since days in Jewish, in Jewish culture start at nightfall, and it's night followed by day, and that's the day, we now see the end of the Sabbath. The sun is setting on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is finally over with all of its perceived restrictions and things I'm not allowed to do. And now what do they do? All they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him. And if they brought them, chances are these people are so sick with so many diverse diseases, they couldn't come on their own. But loved ones, caregivers, bring them to Jesus. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Notice words like all and any and every. And that's who Jesus cares about. That's who Jesus heals. And not just healing physical ailments. Next verse. And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. 
strange source, but it's a true testimony. And he rebuked them, suffering them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. I don't need testimony from you. Allow these people to gain their own in their own way. You might believe, but you don't follow. Testimony is insufficient. True conversion is what is required. And those who are bringing their loved ones unto me are bringing them because they believe. And of course, that faith will invite a miracle. And so the miracles came. Then verse 42 of Luke 4, And when it was day, it sounds like he probably spent that whole night healing. But when it was day, and in the Mark version, it even says that Jesus rose up a great while before day. This sounds like a sleepless night for him. But he departed and went into a desert place. Mark calls it a solitary place. And adds the detail that Jesus went there to pray. Think of this. He wanted to be alone. He wanted to rest. But rest not in a way of sleeping. Rest in a way of recharging. Of reconnecting with his Father in heaven. He spends the day teaching, preaching, healing. He spends the night healing, casting out devils. They were only waiting for the Sabbath to end because they probably were afraid that all these scribes and all these Pharisees were going to pull out some proof text and say, that was work and you, you broke the Sabbath. We'll see lots of that in the Gospels. So they're chomping at the bit and as soon as the sun goes down, they're rushing. Jesus spends whatever time is needed. Maybe he catches a few winks and then up before sunup, great while before day. Because the real rest I need comes from heaven. It comes from prayer, not from my pillow. And so he prays. And then what happens? The people sought him and came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. And he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. For therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. I love this little passage. Here's people. He went off to a solitary place. A desert place. He's trying to get away. <laughs> but not for his sake. I just want to commune with heaven. I've got to recharge so I can come back and help people. But when they find him. And we'll see this, this kind of story repeated several times. When they find him. It's please don't ever leave us again. We just want to stay with you, so please stay with us. You seem to be able to function on a lot less sleep than the rest of us. Uh, complete, don't run away at night. Terry, stay, don't depart. Does this sound like 3 Nephi 17? After a long day of teaching, preaching, healing, and Jesus tells them, I, there's other sheep of the other tribes of Israel, i got to go help them too. And they didn't even have the guts to say it. But it says that they looked upon him as if they would ask him to tarry. <laughs> Couldn't even bring themselves to actually ask. But I wish he'd stay. And Jesus didn't have to be asked. He stayed. I'll tarry. And 3 Nephi 17 is full of some of the most glorious doctrine. If by doctrine we mean power and authority to heal and to help and to bless. It's one of the best chapters in the whole Book of Mormon. 13 by 17. And it's a bonus chapter. It came when Christ was tarrying because the people wanted him to. Similar things are happening here, but what does the Lord say in response? I'll stay as long as I can. Is there anyone else that still needs to be healed? But guess what? This isn't the only city, the only village along the Galilee. So I've got to go to other cities 
because that's why I came. It would be so much easier to stay in a place where you've been successful or to stay in a calling that you finally learned to magnify well. It'd be easy to stay in whatever comfort zone you're currently occupying and bask in the glow of people that applaud you as opposed to trying something new and taking a new assignment or accepting a new calling or risking things to head off into a new direction. But you weren't sent to help only those select few, at least in the Lord's case. Is that why the Spirit brought him up to the exceeding high mountain? Everything you see, you're responsible for. Jesus gets it, and so he needs to move forward. Well, verse 24 and 25, we're now in, Mar in Matthew's account, sorry. Jump back to Matthew 4, 24. His fame went throughout all Syria. There's non-members. They brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments. You ever seen this one before, doctor? Oh, I can handle it. Those that were possessed with devils, those that were lunatic, those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Again, all and every and any, you name it. There followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, that would be Israelites, or Jews, from Decapolis, that's a, a Greek term. It's, it's Roman cities, typically northeast of the Galilee. Deca is 10, Polis is city, so these 10 Gentile cities around it. And from Jerusalem, now we're Jewish headquarters, from Judea, surrounding area down south, and from beyond Jordan, that's east of the, of the river in the Transjordan. Jesus is going everywhere. And the fame of him is spreading everywhere, even beyond where he can go. Sound like we're going to need some apostles uh, as the disciples continue to multiply? The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. It's going to be all hands on deck. So leave the deck, <laughs> literally. Get off your boat, leave your nets, and come running. And they're coming. Multitudes beginning to, to gather. Jump to the Mark version of this, Mark chapter 1, verse 37. And when they, those disciples, who would shortly become apostles, when they had found him, he, got, he even got into a solitary place away from them so he could be off and pray. But they come, they find him, and they said unto him, All men seek for thee. we got so much work to do. Everyone's looking for you. Where you been? Yeah, we got to roll up the sleeves. I hope you slept well, because we're not going to sleep much beyond the, from this moment forward. But then Jesus says in response, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. Which all men were you talking about, Simon, or James, or John, or Andrew? The ones right here? Because my all men is way bigger than your all men. So rather than just stay here among the all men present, can we go to the next town? Because there's more men and women there. And then town after town, and man after man, and woman after woman, all beyond. We've got a globe to bring into the gospel. We've got a planet's worth of people to save. And so will you come with me? Will you help? As we move forward into the next few chapters, we'll be shifting to John next week and seeing Jesus among both insiders and outsiders declaring his messianic mission. It really is all men and all women that he is seeking. Always with the next town in mind always with one more soul to save. Are you next in line? 
He's on his way. Will you wait for him? Will you come unto him as he's trying to come unto you? I just hope that we can prove true what these disciples said to Jesus just now. All men seek for thee. In the specific chapters we are studying this week, Luke gives us a bunch more stories in Luke chapter 5, all of which we'll study later in other lessons in Matthew particularly. So don't worry about what I seem to be skipping in the rest of Luke 5. We'll get there. But I just want to end to this week's lesson with that phrase hanging in the air. All men seek thee. Is that true in our case? I hope so. Can it be true among our friends and family and neighbors? With our help, I believe so. There are wise men out there still seeking him, with or without gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There are still shepherds coming because they've heard the good news and the glad tidings. There are still Simeon's and Anna's aplenty waiting for the consolation of Israel. And you and I know that he's here. To whatever degree it dawns on us that all men and all women are seeking Jesus, then the least that we can do who know him is to make the introduction. May we repeat what Jesus says every chance he does, or every chance he has. Come and see. See him. And you'll be amazed at the words of grace that you hear, the acts of grace that you see, and the spirit of love and grace that he envelops you in.